0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Debatable Podcast. Today on the show we have Elwood Jones, a.k.a. Richard Smethurst. He's the host of the Mad, Bad, and Downright Strange podcast, as well as a blogger and a writer in his own right. Um, We have a uh, pretty good conversation about cult cinema exploitation uh, and basically where he got his start. It's a nice long uh, episode, uh, one that we recorded back in February. It's taken a while to come out, but that doesn't mean that it's not good. It's fantastic. Actually, and uh, we had a great talk, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Um, Before we get into it, as always, I like to remind people to go on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review, kind of uh, up our profile, tell your friends and family to listen to the Debatable Podcast, and uh, check it out. Of course, I have another podcast that I have uh, brought up on several occasions. Uh, It's called All the Pieces Matter. It's a retrospective podcast on HBO's The Wire that I co-host with Fernando Madrigal. Um, so yeah, a uh, little bit of plug action for Twitter. Um, I'm Mister Greggles, M-I-S-T-E-R-G-R-E-G-G-L-E-S, and Fernando is Arturo Morla, A-R-T-U-R-O-M-O-R-L-A. And with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Richard Smithhurst, aka Elwood Jones. I flipped it on you right at the end. It's a great episode. Enjoy.
1: We've no control If the sky is pink and white If the ground is black and yellow It's the same way you showed me Nod my head, don't close my eyes Halfway on a soul move It's the same way you showed me if you could fly, then you'd feel south Up north, getting cold soon The way it is, we're on land So I'm someone all hold true Keep it cool when it's still alive Won't let you down when it's all ruined Just the same way you show me Show me You're sure show- All downhill from here In the wake of a hurricane Dark skin of a summer shade one's in the floodlines Tall tower milk crate It's the same way you showed me Cannonball off the porch side all the kids trying off the roof I mean, it's,
0: it, you know, we, we did this, this podcast Um... About the devils and and yeah. um uh and seven and we kind of you know I'm getting just just looking at this this list that you put on Letterbox, which is kind of like you know supposed to be what, what is it? What is it? What do you call it? The thousand and one movies?
2: Yeah, it's the uh, Mad, Bad, and Downright Strange list. Um, it's a one thousand and one film introduction. Keyword there being introduction because. Uh-huh you start saying essential or any of those sorts of uh, buzzwords people tend to start getting all defensive about what you class as being essential or not but if you say right. something's an introduction because i always find that whenever they do a list of and obscure cinema they do a hundred and because exploitation cinema or genre cinema or just cult cinema on a whole it's so expansive and it covers so many different genres right that by doing a thousand one list you can it's like having this massive buffet that you can like pick from right and you can like you're providing people an introduction so say they someone like picks up jackie brown for instance i mean that opens up just not only pam grier's whole back catalog of great films i mean you right. can go from there you can go to friday foster you can go to the arena um, right you can go to coffee i mean you can even then go off into like doing the black exploitation films of things like black shampoo or the mac or i mean you can even just T- traditionally, starts on like the classics with things like Shaft or mm-hmm. uh, The Human Tornado, uh, which is again a film I have just recently watched. But it's like that early, the guy, main guy in it, is like one of these pioneer, early pioneers of hip hop, right? Because um, he did these like rhyming records. Um, I'm trying to remember its name now, and of course, it's going complete blank on me.
0: And this was like the mid to the late seventies, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really that was. The sort of key era for these sort of movies, I mean, that, that you would have these obviously coming out, I mean, it's really sort of in the prime of 42nd Street, when right. you had all the grindhouse theatres and that, and they were looking for material to sort of fill, fill up with, and you would, it would be in this sort of era where you would have a film and it would be taken from cinema to cinema. It's not like what we have now, where a studio would produce like a few thousand reels of a film and listen send them out to... Right. different uh, theaters, it would be the case of it would go from theater to theater and they would, that was how you would catch films and more often than not these films would be scratched or scuffed along the way so it's been a real case of whenever an exploitation film has been found and you've got people like Something Strange, uh, Vinegar Syndrome these companies that now pick up exploits, it's the case that they're having to invest time to restore them as yeah. well best they can and you get some films which are just like bits of film like there's a uh, classic example of uh, a film called Bat Pussy which was released <laughs> by Something Strange and it's kind of like this porn parody of Batman with this uh, hot chick playing um, playing Batman uh-huh. and for the most part it's just like these two angry rednecks trying to have sex with each other but the two like drunkards to actually do anything apart from just swear at each other. Well, it's like the strangest but most fascinating movie you can watch.
0: I think with I think with that synopsis, I kind of that, that that leads perfectly into kind of understanding this thing because I I've talked I've talked about bad movies with uh Will Smith of uh, of Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema yeah. and and James McCormick and, and so many guests have been on Debatable where we've talked about kind of off the beaten path. And I always wondered like so, since we're trying to to appeal to a, to a layman's uh, a layman listener, even though probably most of the people who listen to this podcast are aware of it, and you don't really need to define it. I just uh, as an extension of talking about what you know is attractive of bad movies or movies that uh, might be off the beaten path. When we talk about cult cinema, to you, is it just since you you mentioned that it's so expansive? Is it just as simple as saying uh, cult cinema is something that is not mainstream, that the mainstream audience would not uh, be attracted to or seek out.
2: I wouldn't say that a cult film is traditionally a film which has been produced off the mainstream. Um, A private example of this would be Zoolander. Uh Zoolander has a huge cult following, but when it came out, it was released as the mainstream comedy. And of course, no one really got it, and it had this small audience, and like through word of mouth, and I think people like myself were just drawn in by the fact that David Bowie put in a cameo and then <laughs> right. he just like randomly turns up and it's like oh here's David Bowie here's uh, Billy Zane he's right. a cool guy right and I, what I loved about Zoolander is the fact that it is Ben been still essentially going off and doing something this parody of the fashion industry but he's got, essentially going off and he's making a film which seemed to be, have, like, very little studio interference, especially definitely. how random and surreal it is. Definitely, um,
0: definitely, I mean,
2: this is a movie which opens with a... Uh, with a um, innocent gasoline factor, that's <laughs> it, to, um, to wake me up before you go-go. Uh-huh. And I think it's sort in that opening five minutes, you'd, like, know whether you're going to stick with this or not, but well, there's th- so many mi- moments within that film where I just... Uh, which I just constantly refer back to, like when he's working at the mine and he like comes out and he's drinking his little martini in the um, miner's bar and he's doing his little smokers <laughs> coffee. He's like, I got the cologne, pa. Uh, yeah. like, you've been in the mine goddamn day. How can you have the lung?
0: <laughs> no, that's a good point. I think that that kind of extends to a lot of Ben, ben Stiller's movies, even mm. uh, Tropic Thunder. Um, there's these elements that I guess would not be... Just, just mainstream comedy, or even mainstream cinema. I, I guess, I guess when it, when you get down to it, it's the the package that it might be put in, and and maybe it, sometimes it can be a, a fake out, like you expect the the big budget action look. Of a, of a Michael Bay movie or, or a Tony Scott movie when you're looking at uh, uh Tropic Thunder and it is in that package of being a mainstream action movie, but there's subversive language, there's subversive characters and subversive comedy in there. And I guess, I guess it's always come down to the, the definition of cult film or cult media in any, in any uh, 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 way being something that is just a little odd or a little strange or uh, off the expectation, you know, going against the expectation.
2: I mean, if we were to go off the film school uh, definition of what cult cinema is, a cult cinema is any movie which lives past its, essentially, its sell-by date. So any film which we're still... Talking about which people are still wanting right. to go and see. Right. I mean, in this terms, like Casablanca and Gone with the Wind are classed as cult cinema. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But when we traditionally talk about cult cinema, it's, it tends to be these movies which go against convention, um, especially in the terms of like exploitation cinema. Yeah, the way I view it, view and certainly the appeal of cult cinema, especially with exploitation cinema, I think John Landis put it best when in the documentary American Grindhouse, where He defined exploitation cinema as the scene in Pinocchio where they go to the the fun fair, the Coney Island like fun fair, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you've got like the Barker there and he's like promising all these things. And I think, certainly with exploitation cinema, it's this idea where you're selling the film on one aspect that you perhaps can only have like this one aspect. Say you've got like a hot chick. That you can sell, or you, so you make it like an exploitation film, or the fact that you've only got black actors, so you're a black exploitation movie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it even goes down to things such as, oh, we've made this cult cool movie and it's from Canada, so it's a can exploitation movie. Right, right. And I think it's these little sub genres which perhaps make these films stand out a little more. And it's often the promise that you're going to see something you ain't going to see anywhere else. True. Um, there's a I mean, there's a movie called Turkey Shoot. It's kind of like Battle Royale. It's a exploitation film.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've heard of this. Uh huh.
2: And basically, it's again, it's one of these numerous plays on the dangerous, most dangerous game where these prisoners are being hunted for sports. Right. But there's a character who's essentially a werewolf in a top hat, and he's like riding around in this like uh, dune buggy thing, and it's like. I'm not gonna see that in like a Michael Bay movie I' don't you're right
0: think. you're right I think it's this you know you get down to it I think that if, if you're going specifically into the exploitation and even the the genre cinema thing I guess it is built around something that is um, uh, the the blueprint or the you know the packaging of something but you're right seeking it out um, if that's a movie that you want to see that's the memorable element that you're gonna take away away from that where are you going to see that somewhere else you're not going yeah. to when you say the the fucking werewolf in the top hat movie <laughs> or the head in the box movie you know there's there, there's fewer and fewer maybe only one uh movie that you're you're refu- uh, uh, re- referring to
2: i think i mean just if we look back to when we that first discussion we had a movie we were there talking about the devils yeah and i mean that again is a cool movie i mean how do you sell sell the devils it's sort of like Oh, it's this scene where you have all these nuns which are going n- nuts and nude. Right. Uh, yeah. You have Oliver Reed, who, again, probably drunk and nude. <laughs> um, and you've got, if you're watching the certainly uncut scene, you've got you've got a scene being promised as the rape of Christ.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: which, obviously, as we know, has been cut out. But certainly, the scene is essentially there in, in, in its butchered form. But still, you're watching these films and you're know, like, been being blown away by what you're being seen because there's this sort of element in your mind you're watching things. You know that it's kind of wrong. It's kind of sleazy yeah. to be watching uh, these films. And at the same time, it's kind of a, a thrill. And as well as that, you have this sort of thrill of discovery because a lot of old films, sort of like classic films, they're, ha- they're preserved and that. But a lot of these cult films, they're sort of passed around between, between collectors and fans. and It's something you have to hunt out. And I think it's the thrill... Of hunting out these movies. It is. Mentioned something. I mean, even we go back to like the days of tape trading and you'd have things like Winnebago Man or um, Heavy Metal Parking Lot and you would hear these, hear about these things and you'd be like, oh, this guy's, I've got this on tape and you know, I can trade you this for my third generation copy of Cannibal Ferox, which Although a lot of these tapes and stuff you would get through would be like grainy, you would still get that thrill of right. seeing something that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't normally get to see. And I think even now where we've got things like YouTube and the numerous streaming services, let alone companies dedicated to restoring and preserving exploitation, the thrill of discovery is still there.
0: Absolutely, I think that it's also interesting because this is something that's been kind of um, a hallmark of my adult life as I've gotten older and become, you know, deeper into my my film obsession and and even my media obsession as a whole, um, but. I always go back to, and I can't remember the exact phrasing that Noel Murray from AV Club had written in this um, article. He was talking about music. He had a, an ongoing uh, music series that he wrote about. I think it was like weekly or biweekly, and this great phrase about the person who's, um, I believe he was talking about uh, music fans that they've listened to uh, music and and uh, and particular artists so much they uh they've uh consumed so much of the medium itself that they start digging on esoteric things they start digging on the things that are uh weird and uh sparse and kind of avant-garde and i kind of think that that's kind of true of anyone who's a, uh, a, a a a fan of a medium so if you talk about a piece of art like film in general uh you see so many movies that especially when you talk about mainstream Movies that are the same cookie cutter plot, the same cookie cutter type of yeah. movie that's just trying to make uh, money, and um, for the uh, regular mainstream audience who's not necessarily a film buff or or uh, 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 you know aversed in movies in general, they're going there just to escape. They're going there to see the Top Gun. They're going there to see the Michael Bay movie, and yeah. they're perfectly fine with whatever they're spoon fed. Whereas someone who's a film buff, someone who has seen uh, every movie that De Palma's put out, or every Tarantino movie, or you know, has sought out all of Oliver Reed's movies. Like, you get to this point of you want to get more and more off the beaten path, you want to see more and more something that excites you. If it's not the excitement of of uh, getting the thing, you know, uh, chasing it and getting the particular movie or finding this hard-to-find movie, it's the finding movies that have these elements that are so weird or unique that kind of feeds that excitement that kind of, uh, you know, uh, that you might have felt early when you got into film, you know, that childhood sense of excitement, you know, of seeing for me like Psycho or Good, the Bad and the Ugly for the first time. I'm looking, I'm going to seek out, the movie with the werewolf and the top hat, even though it makes maybe no sense to the movie. It's just its own little unique element, just so I can have that excitement again of something fresh and new, because I've seen, you know, every type of version of action movie. I've seen every type of version of the romantic comedy that Hollywood puts out and stuff yeah. like that.
2: And I think it's those sorts of film fans that those are the ones I want to sort of hang out If I'm going to hang out with a film fan, those are the ones I want to stand out. Like, I love the people who... They'll watch like an entry level title, as you mentioned, like The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Yeah. And they're like check out other spaghetti westerns. So they'll like check out the works of Sergio Cabucci uh-huh. and see things like the original Django. Right. Or they can like from there it, there's so many different avenues where you can obviously go. And for myself it was those early film viewing experiences where I I think it was uh it was Godzilla versus the Sea Monster or uh-huh. Ever A Horror of the Deep, as it was over right. in the UK. Right. And it was as I said, it, you when you're watching this kid, it's like you know, it's it's a giant dinosaur movie. It's dinosaur destroying buildings and stuff. This is really cool. But in the back of my mind, it like sparked this interest. In it. it was like oh, I have to see more of these. And from there, it was sort of led on to other aspects of Asian culture, same way as my interest in like kung fu movies. I grew up watching like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan films,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it makes you want to go back and you see like the two Su Hawk movies. You want to see like Jet Li's early movies, like Once Upon a Time in China, where mm-hmm. it's like one to three. And I think this is the great thing for kids today, especially because when I was certainly coming up, you had to sort of like hunt down these sort of channels to find tapes. But nowadays kids can like go on the the internet and they I know I'm sounding like a real old timer here, but <laughs> you can like go on any message board and you can get any number of titles yeah. recommended and get the list. And I think the same way that Tarantino with his films, I know he's been criticized for, they're stealing things from other movies and as I've said to you before I prefer to see it as he scrapbooks ideas and it's the way he constructs them uh-huh. which is where the interest but certainly with his films like if you look at Kill Bill it's going to spark people are going to look at it and want to see where the references are and then check those films out yeah absolutely I mean that can then obviously lead on fair fair sort of down the rabbit hole for just fair Asian cinema on a whole and back I mean back when around the time of Pulp Fiction he did have his little label called Rolling Thunder Pictures which I wish he'd continue to do, and he Me was too. bringing over titles.
0: Me too. I, I um, just recently saw Hardcore Logo for the first time. Yeah, and the you know the, that's the Rolling Thunder label is the is the label that would have brought out all these exploitation movies, uh, Switchblade Sisters, uh, along with King Express and Hardcore Logo. I wish I wish he kept with it. I wish he did.
2: I, I think one of the nice things about especially the early tapes is that he provided an intro and outro so he'd have Tantino's Mm -hmm. film school if you have it and he's like highlighting all these different aspects and like he gives you an introduction and things to look out in the film you watch the film and at the end it's like hey wasn't that great how about we recap on these points and like this is what else the director did and I can recommend these films if you sort of dug it so it's kind of what he was doing in the video store
3: yeah video archives
2: but he was essentially doing it for larger audience and some of those DVDs you can still get. I mean, Chunking Express still has the uh, has the opening. Um, I believe Switchblade Sister does as well. Mm-hmm. And you can also find these on YouTube as well. Um, I believe if you type in Tarantino and Exploitation Center, it should bring it up. Absolutely. Kind of you know, oh.
0: it, 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 it dawns on me that DVDs and Blu-rays have kind of done what you know, Avid and Final Cut Pro have done, making the experience... Uh, less linear, you know, non-linear, kind of the experience of getting straight to the movie, getting over the uh, the openings, the FBI, for us, the FBI logos, um, getting past the previews. Well, I remember, you know, the experience of watching a VHS was that you put it in and you would go through all of these things. Everything was linear and it was laid out for you. You could fast forward it, but if the experience was you know, just putting it in, I know that we had a VCR that didn't have a remote. So we would just put it in the VCR and let it play. And there's this thing of just linearity. And now with DVD and Blu-ray, you know, it's even more like um, the interactions almost like a, a, a video game. You know, you pick mm. the thing that you are starting. You start the movie, you start the special feature, you start the commentary, you change the audio, all of this stuff. You're playing in menus. Whereas with VHS, it was linear linearity just put on a timeline for you and you're watching this and that, I always thought that that was uh, a beautiful aspect when you had you know Tarantino or an introduction by uh, uh, the director or someone uh, giving you context of the movie you were about to see you see this on a lot of you know a special art house or classic movies um, they still do it kind of with uh, Turner classic movies over here uh, TCM will still put out uh, DVDs with yeah. the intros by the the um, the the hosts on on TCM, so yeah. But I think that it's so weird now that you would have to go to a menu and find Quentin Tarantino's intro, or kind of get to give you that kind of uh, context for the movie instead of having it play as part of the movie experience.
2: Oh, I totally get. There's a label over here called Artificial Eye. Uh-huh. It was one of the one of the big labels for sort of art house and independent cinema uh, releases and certainly foreign films. And before each film they would they were really particular with the trailers they picked, like say you picked up a Kevin Smith movie, they'd show like a trail of her How Ashby movie, or right. like these people who would influence the director, or if they couldn't do that they were just like from some really random foreign trailer most of the time they weren't subtitled i've right in mean, this one trailer i still remember i have no idea what the film is but there's this scene where they're in like a paris subway tunnel and like all the film posters on the walls are like burning up mm-hmm. um and i remember seeing that going what is that i have to go and get that yeah. for my next purchase absolutely and i'd miss that that obviously as you said that now we're just straight into the film we miss this introduction it's like these people skip the trailers when they go to the cinema mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is something i never understood it's it's it's, it's part of the experience it, it is it's the
0: experience absolutely absolutely right. it's, from, from yeah, a we... from a from a you know since since one of my interests is kind of like always trying to see where where people are coming from their their origins and, and you know that that our, both of our cultures are you know obviously Western world Western civilization and we both have very similar kind of uh, uh, outlooks when we come when it comes to the type of uh, movies we seek out and everything but I have to understand like to to me from from an American point of view um, I know. That there is cinema that we seek out. That's that's European cinema. That's often more available in the UK. Um, I know that there were there was a time, and probably it might still be prevalent, where a lot of Asian cinema would be sought out by Americans through UK labels because you you guys would have English subtitles and you would have good English subtitles. Whereas if you got a bootleg from you know Thailand or or a, a non-English speaking country, you know the the subtitles. I remember the the um, the bootleg that I got for Battle Royale had terrible subtitles on it, so I had to seek out getting Battle Royale from from the UK because that that Tartan release had better subtitles.
2: So, I mean, you're so just st- stoking at my nostalgia now when you mentioned Tartan. Tartan was a yeah another wonderful label and one that sadly was sort of squashed out with more companies entering the freighters sort of by the key titles so uh but i had done something you're saying The the battle at release they did was absolutely lovely
0: yeah well what, is there is there I, I i imagine you know whenever i talk about this there's there's some some sort of naivete uh coming from a, an american how other cultures uh uh get the our are, are exports i mean i imagine that american cinema is is overly prevalent everywhere I hear from friends you know everywhere that you guys are as inundated with it as uh, I'm sure we are here except we don't get it going the other way we don't get it we we seek out you know I seek out the foreign films or even the English language uh, uh, UK titles that I go look for whereas I'm sure in another country even you know fucking India gets inundated with a certain uh, level of foreign film what about you guys? Is it is it prevalent? You know, you're you're going to seek out kung fu movies. You're going to seek out things that are off the beaten path. Was it prevalent when you were a kid to find these things, or did you really have to search?
2: Oh, I think certain certain things. There was labels that set up. Uh, I mean, certainly martial arts movies. We had the Hong Kong Legends, uh-huh. uh, which turned into Cine Asia, so it became more sort of general, sort of Asian um, distribution label, right? And through there, we were able to get, we were able to get like the Jackie Chan movies and like Summer Hung and uh, Bruce Lee movies. Right. But at the same time, there were still titles that kind of alluded us, like Cab uh, P- um, Driver*, the uh, Summer Hung movie. Uh-huh. They, that was not impossible. I believe it had a limited run of VHS with the Made in Hong Kong uh, label, which was one of the first labels to give us police story. Gotcha. But at the same time, I could only get I think about six of the Godzilla titles. Mm-hmm. So probably the happiest days when I got my multi-region uh, <laughs> DVD player, and I could yeah. import the missing, especially the later Godzilla titles. I think right. from Godzilla 2000 onwards, because we right. got, I believe we got up to Godzilla, we got up to a Godzilla versus Mothra, um, and Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, which released through Manga Entertainment, mm-hmm. and then these later ones they just never released them. So the joy of being able to get those missing titles because they were only released Region 1 and Region 3. Right. Um, but for some reason, they felt us Brits didn't have a demand for <laughs> Godzilla. And I was like, what the hell, man?
0: <laughs> I think- was, was there an interest in, in in horror and other exploitation genres for you? <sighs>
2: I think for myself I came to it very much later in the game. I was never a big horror fan growing up. It was really when I was in college so around 99 2000 uh-huh. uh, that I started getting into horror more and I started off with like the classics like the Friday the 13th and Yeah. i shit and From there you obviously and especially with reading up on on like horror sites and stuff you find out about directors like Argento and films like The Burning which mm-hmm. Again, they had had some sort of lease, but they were very sort of minor labels that were leased under. Um, and they were sort of like very grimy sort of labels. Like I think it was Verbico who was doing like The Burning, uh, House on the Edge of the Park. And mm-hmm. they would have these black covers with like this bold font on. Yeah,
0: right. Um,
2: and of course had the most lurid sort of pictures on the back. These weren't like the classic 80s video covers, which I think by my time we get into the game, the video stores were kind of on the way out. Right. And, I had the one store uh, known as a video bug where they never got rid of any tapes. They just put in more shelves. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was hell and hell for like uh, if you were in a wheelchair or had limited <laughs> mobile access. But the selection, if you could like crawl your way in there was fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, and it was like, for there we would obviously pick it up, but there was a lot of titles that you would, I think they mainly had like a, sort of like American release, and you would have it was only through like things like YouTube and that you would be able to to get them across. But they slowly filtered across as more of these like exploitation labels have popped up. I mean, back when I first started getting into it, we had um Ongoing Legends, which was kung fu. Right. You had Artificial Eye, which again was art house and foreign cinema and independent, um, and then you had Tartan, me, Tartan uh, Media who. Essentially, led the charge of the Asian invasion about 2000. With thing they had this triple header of Ring, uh, Battle Royale, and Takashi Mike's audition, yeah, yeah. And they spawned this like interest, some interest in Asian horror in particular, uh-huh. um, through their Asian Extreme label. Which, if you can get a list of titles that was released for the Asian Extreme label, it's sort of the best introduction to. Asian Extreme or Asian Horror Cinema that you can right. get. So the titles they're having, I mean, they had a load of the early sort of titles, early release titles for Takashi Miike, and these were sort of like the key p- titles of his outlaw period. So you had like Dead or Alive 1 and 2, mm-hmm. uh, you had Food of the New Generation came across as a result of their, their release, um, Audition, um, Ishe the Killer, Ishii, mm-hmm. um, which I think. It really shocked a lot of people. I don't think there's a lot of people who oh, picked yeah. it up of reputation not knowing who Mikey was. Oh,
0: absolutely. I was one of them. I I think that it, <laughs> I think there was a a good selection of Mike films that were becoming more prevalent because not only were they having a Renaissance in Japan and in Hong Kong, you know, uh, uh, at the same time, but the Western world was getting inundated with this stuff and the conventions that we were having here. That's where battle Royale was first seen. That's where we were seeing each of the killer. I remember watching each of the killer in a half uh, packed. the half packed. It was. It was a half uh, 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 empty auditorium with terrible sound. Like. Uh, like a, a, a an auditorium where you would see a basketball game here. So the <laughs> the, the audio system is just reverberating and and uh, bouncing off these kind of concrete walls. You're getting no sort of buffering whatsoever. And uh, it it sounded horrible. But of course, you know, we're we're just reading the subtitles. And of course, that movie is, is violent. It's Grotesque from the opening title in semen. I mean, it's a it is a movie that. And if you and if you seek out more Miki around that time, um, he's got some pretty shocking titles in there too.
2: I think yeah, the problem is really because a lot of people join so Mike's film filmography within that outlaw period. I think yeah, Ishiya the Killer was really one of the sort of last titles, and with Imprint, which it was the episode of Masters of Horror he did, which uh-huh. ends up being banned. Um, but was released as part of the box set really being his last hurrah and then from there he's obviously moved on to the the thing with Mickey he produces about 8 films a year but he doesn't stick to any particular one genre even though he's probably known for extreme cinema so it's been more interesting for myself seeing the film he's produced after this Outlaw period films like 13 Assassins yeah he's done prestige
0: movies almost
2: that's right. I mean, he's done comic book adaptations like Yatterman. Uh-huh. He did um, a video game adaptation of Ace Attorney. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, I mean, he even did like a high school musical for love's sake. And you're like, well, this is the same guy who gave us the most intense five minutes of splatter with mm-hmm. the opening of Dead or Alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the guy who gave us the Matrix chicken, uh, right. Matrix cockfight in City of Lost Souls. And yep. he's not bound for no particular joy. He's just real, a real working man director i mean it's so funny when he describes his early movies which he describes as being films he makes with boys out in the countryside right and you forget that in japan especially they have this market for
0: for software uh, and stuff bcd right yeah yeah, yeah which right we yeah. obviously
2: don't have over here so yeah, right. he can produce a lot of smaller movies and stuff but
0: well it's, it's a different a- it's a different idea of of auteur theory right you know like oh. like that's the thing that that always kind of differentiates certain type of uh, uh, film buffs you know you have the ones that are in the slums of exploitation and in cult cinema and digging for really esoteric shit or, or stuff yeah. that would kind of turn off most people and then you have the other ones that are kind of the auteur snobs I think that kind of you know every film buff to a certain degree has a foot in, in both of those you know and I kind of wonder you know uh, whenever you talk about your a director you talk about their catalog of movies their canon whatever um you know it's it's so easy to approach because it, people feel comfortable starting with this director is it, it, their style is like this who their influences are are definitely like this but Mike totally blows it out of the water because Mike, you know, goes all over the place. He he doesn't make any particular uh uh genre only. He doesn't always use the same type of uh uh, uh visual or auditory um uh, uh bag of tricks. He's 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 all over the place.
2: He's yeah, he's suddenly he's not an odd director I mean even if you look at any of his trilogies like you look at the Shinjuku uh, Triad Society uh-huh. yeah yeah um, just the free film Shinjuku Triad Society which is like a real Fantastic sort of street movies. thug movie I love them. you've got Rainy Dog which is quite a little charming hitman movie where they dig up a motorcycle on the beach and, and it still works yeah and then you've obviously got Ley Lines which again is about these three boys out in the countryside and it's amazing that a director can produce a trilogy of movies but obviously rather than do reoccurring characters, do reoccurring themes instead, but make three completely different movies. And yeah, that's very true. If you true. had a western director, for example, if you gave him a trilogy, you'd expect a similar movie. Just Some continuity.
0: Right. Well, let's get back to to my main point, though. Do you feel... So, so when I talk about you having access to these things and seeking them out. Where does that start for you? Because, you know, you're you're a kid that, obviously, did you go to school for film?
2: I didn't go to school for film. I think all my sort of film studies and stuff, I, I mean, I studied films, film studies at a A-level. Okay. Because um, we have college, and then you go off to university and, and do your degree. I never went to university. Gotcha. Um, and it was... All my education up until that point was just through watching film. And I think it was really about 99 to when I started college and watching A Clockwork Orange and realizing that there was something deeper happening on the screen than the surface details. And I think it's when you watch a film like Clockwork Orange, especially from a master like Kubrick, Mm -hmm. and the opening especially, and you hit with that audio assault and it's kind of like the, the tones of it is kind of like the opening to Irreversible that white noise there right. that they used to disparate riots and, <laughs> and things but mm-hmm. you've also got his, the reinterpretation of the classic music that runs throughout Clockwork Orange and the introduction when you open on the Moloko milk bar mm-hmm. and Alex introduces the story and it reads the same as Burgess's source novel right. and I just remember being so gripped and wanting to follow all more Kubrick's films and see just like to see how he shot particular things and it made me go back and and study films i'd seen previously like you go back and you look at even films like godzilla you look at um how the original godzilla is shot oh yeah oh yeah and it's shot in very low angles mm-hmm. um in the way that it's a
0: much different film too than than what came after
2: well this is the thing it's it's really about about the horrors of, of what I mean—it came the whole Godzilla plot came out of these uh, fishing trawlers that um, accidentally sailed into a nuclear testing
3: uh-huh.
2: um, area. Right, and I mean the original Godzilla was actually a combination of a gorilla and a whale, but somehow along the way they narrowed <laughs> it down to a more his more traditional lizard form. Right, but I, the way. When you watch the original Godzilla movie, it's it's not a ropey monster movie. It's shot as a serious movie. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with the original Mothra movie. And you see it with the low angles, the way Godzilla is shot, and you've got those scenes of like the field hospitals and these scenes of destruction. I mean, there's this poignant scene in the original Godzilla movie where you've got the mother holding her children. It's like, don't worry, be over soon. We'll see your father soon. Mm-hmm. And it like, hits you. And then everyone just sort of joins Godzilla. So the later sort of movies um and when you're watching things like Godzilla versus uh, a for example, or Violante, mm-hmm. and the, the, at this point, there are these like monster sized smackdowns, which again, are still fun. Right. But it's, you're seeing how the films have shifted in tone and how the audience was changing and that. And it was just fascinating to go back and like find out about directors and like this director did this. And like, I remember just growing up, especially when I started getting into film, it was like Kubrick and Scorsese were like my main ones. I think, Scorsese in particular, because when you're in college, you're an angry oh, young yeah. man, and oh, yeah. Scorsese appeals to that side oh, yeah. of you.
0: Well, um, is it all coming from from the atmosphere and and the peer group of of college, or were you like were you into to movies going all the way back to to childhood?
2: I've, I was always into. I was into films.
0: When did Uh, you, when did you break apart though? When did you get more auteurist or when did you become like, like you became more academic obviously by the time you got into college, but were you even pulling apart uh, movies and thinking about themes and thinking about, you know, a character motivation when you were watching movies as a teenager or was it just something passive?
2: Certainly when I was watching it, it was more, it was more the experience you watch films for. Right. Um, you enjoyed enjoyed how the film played, rather than doing, going into any deeper. I mean, there were certain aspects that certainly fascinated me, such as when we would watch, like especially with creature effects. Right, I'd watch a movie like Gremlins or Critters, and this idea of how they, they made the puppet, and especially with uh, Ray Harryhausen mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. things like it came from beneath the sea or mm-hmm. Clash of the Titans, and it's like, oh, how did the stop motion? I remember watching like the stop motion. Figurines. Yeah. And the way they move on the screen is so different than like a digital effect or a practical effect. Oh, yeah. There's something so magical about it. I remember like going, I love these movies which feature these effects. And you would find out, well, it's this guy who does these effects and he's done all these other films. And you like watch um, Creature of Miles or Valleguangi.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you're like, I mean, Valleguangi, we all focus on the dinosaur, but there's the scene with the uh, diving horse which again, just the simplicity of that effect is just absolutely fascinating. And You can go back even further to like the likes of Mighty Joe Young, the sort of predecessors to oh, King Kong. Yeah. Oh yeah. And like The Lost World and I just I, remember it was more the thrill of what you were watching back then. And obviously as you get older, you start to want to look more at how films are made
0: i love i love that you bring that up because i i think that that's something that i've always kind of glossed over in my own autobiography when i talk about it on this show um that that the that creature effects and makeup effects those things that are completely otherworld or they're trying to yeah. capture something that's realistic in a very you know magical illusionary way for for someone who's watching it to make it seem like it's tangible and real, I think that that is something that probably uh made me. Love film. It got me into film, you know, watching Ghostbusters or watching um, uh, uh, Gremlins, like you said, or watching any of these movies with crazy creature effects that would, you know. That would scare me as a kid, seeing the thing or seeing uh, the makeup effects in Nightmare on Elm Street and everything. But to to know that you know as an adult that that kind of craft that uh, that they had in these uh, 30s, 40s, 50s Jeez. creature features that's the type of shit that that really is um, a lost craft because now everything is done in the computers. Obviously, I don't want to sound again like an old man, but those type of uh, uh, crafts, those things that that really were were unique to creating something that that doesn't exist at all, but yeah. we can see in twenty four frames per second is is insane. It's it's something that probably turned me on to the medium as a
2: whole. I think that just to, obviously you mentioned the thing that I just want to say that the thing is hands down one of the scariest movies ever made.
0: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I own the thing on DVD, but it's still in the shrink wrap because I know what's on that disc. Oh yeah, oh yeah, um, <laughs> oh yeah. But um, no, I used to like growing up i used to watch horror movies with my grand and it used to be this because we used to never watch anything past the 15 that was our unofficial rule um and that way past the past the the what it was our unofficial rule we had like in the uk uh rating system we have gotcha um you had view which is like kids and you have Uh pg which is slightly more risque right and then you had 12 but 12 back then was kind of rare to see and then we have 15 where you have to be 15 to watch it, and then 18's our top rating. Gotcha. But I used to watch. we used to have this like unofficial ruleway. We'd watch fifteen, cause any anything that happens at 15, we can pretty much handle. Right. If you go into 18, you're watching things like Alien and Splatter, and it uh-huh. it's gonna get a bit too heavy for like an eight-year-old to, oh, yeah. to deal with that. But you can watch a film like Psycho, and we used to like oh as well. and we'd discuss it, and it'd be like it's kind of like watching a magic trick
0: it is yeah
2: it's like how do they cut the woman in half I used to be fascinated by like how like Paul Daniels who's there, one of our big magicians over here or like David Copperfield like you know how does he do the trick and yeah. you'd watch horror movies and my way we're talking with my granny it's like you know the woman wasn't stabbed in the Sharon Psycho you mm-hmm. know it's fake blood and you know when you see the guy been in half by the shark in George you know that's just right. ketchup and you know it's a fake shark and you know? we would like I think these were like early sort of musings on what would become film space, but just understanding what you were watching and it was it was uh it's you know some happy childhood memories there watching our movies to my grand and
0: that's something and, that that I miss too because I feel like uh at least talking to to my nephews and 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 some some younger uh generations that are growing up there's this element of of too much knowledge. Knowing how the yeah. the uh, you know the the cake is made. Knowing how the the sausage is made. And and also there's also this element of uh, impatience. You know we need to like I you you can so easily go to Wikipedia and find out how a movie or a TV show ends. Um, there even though spoiler culture is is there, it's so easy for someone now to know uh, something before experiencing it or you know going through uh, 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 not only how the the movie's made, the extra textual stuff but knowing where it's going to end up instead of experiencing it so you know as an 8 year old uh, seeing these movies that are uh, truly frightening, maybe even going off the beaten path and, and watching something that you shouldn't watch—you know, R-rated movies or eighteen-level uh, movies—that would be something that you you're, you're you're testing yourself. It's a litmus test: Can you handle it? Could you handle watching? For me, I guess it was—I uh, guess it was Nightmare on Elm Street or one of those horror movies. Um, maybe Friday the Thirteenth, something with with too much gore for that for that level but also you know I I was one of the kids that watched Robocop with my dad and that's an extremely ultra violent movie Um, I don't know what age I was probably younger than 12 but that's the thing to me it's like now uh kids know too much they know too much about wh- what is um what is fakery you know everything is created there, there there's when i watched Robocop, it was as real to me as anything is as real as the news
2: yeah i think the problem we have now is that because of the films which are being produced now we have directors such as Eli Roth and
3: uh-huh.
2: um, Eli Roth I'm going to use as my main perpetrator here because there's other directors certainly who have produced this but I feel they do it in a more respectful way such as Alessandra AJ or uh, uh-huh. James Wan they they seem to have more more respect than that but you have people like Eli Roth and you feel that they're coming to the arena and that they're feeling that they have to top what's come before it Okay, and that you have these films like like Hostel, these like these torture porn uh, movies, mm-hmm. and that these this is what the kids are sort of growing up with. That there's no they, The students, especially they don't seem to have the faith that you could like make a Friday the Thirteenth movie with the same sort of subtlety that the original Friday the Thirteenth movie has. That right. it has to be balls to wall splatter and gore, and you can't do like an off screen kill. You can't tease up to like a a kill anymore. You, the kids have no sort of patience. There is, uh, yeah, so.
0: exactly. Yeah, I was gonna say there's an in, that impatience really does breed to something that I feel like is it breeds uh, that that inability to yeah. to take a moment and to not have balls to the wall. You know, how do you? Uh, it, I guess the the outlook has to be that you have to always be pushing the envelope. Uh, nowadays, with newer filmmakers, Eli Roth and and the post Tarantino ilk, is that you have to do something that's fresh that someone's never seen before. So uh, you can either do a, a new gag, which is harder to do to come up with, and or you could just you know turn the uh, the dial up higher and higher.
2: I think this is where it falls down to. Sort of as senior film watchers, and where we have this opportunity to expose fresh new minds to the the sort of key films that grow up, like expose kids to the lights of Carpenter, show them Landis's uh, American Werewolf in mm-hmm. London. Mm-hmm. You know, fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, they tend to just without any sort of proper guidance, they just go off whatever the multiplex is showing, right? Um, and assume that oh, this is this is horror and this is how it should be. But if you it can educate these kids on on the why these films matter and, and stuff like. But so if you can get uh, some sort of. Depth, I mean, I'd show. I would say that the thing still stands up as oh, yeah. an effective horror movie. I mean, it's one of it's the right. last movies to be pure, purely used with just practical effects. There's no mm-hmm. digital touch-ups or anything in that movie, right, right. and it's still scary as hell. Oh yeah. And Absolutely. I think if you showed it to a young horror audience. And, and created the right atmosphere to show it in you didn't just like just like throw it on mm-hmm. if you like said that, you know this is a film that you... If you come to class yourself a horror fan, this is yeah. a film you have to watch. Yeah. Same as uh, Stuart Gordon's *Reanimator*. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um Stuart Gordon, for my money, again, is one of the most underrated directors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially in terms of horror. I've been recently going through his back catalogue and you discover films like Dolls,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, another film which uses extensive uh, stop-motion animation. And you wonder, it's like, why are your kids not discovering these movies? Why are they just going off what Eli Roth says is horror why are they sure. going like what some studio says that you know the seventh entry in their franchise is supposed yeah. to be horror. why are they not venturing out and trying to discover some like the classics and the directors which came before them and it's unfortunate that a lot of the directors we grew up with like Craven and mm-hmm. Carpenter and that they've unfortunately lost their mojo for filmmaking yeah that's true and the, what they're putting out now makes them seem like lesser directors because they're Unless you're familiar with their back catalogue works, it can be especially to a new audience. And I think this is something that's hard to get across to established horror fans and certainly people in the community that these kids don't have this reference point unless they have a, a, a filth elder, if you will, to show, to expose them to.
0: <laughs> I think you just named this podcast the Filth Elder. <laughs> I love that.
2: I know that's, I know John Waters. That's what he refers to himself as when he. That's like, hilarious. When he's, like, campaigning for uh, people to see the, see the smut that he likes yeah. to, pr- like, promote, like, The Fluffer or Highway. Or, uh uh-huh. Um I mean, again, he did a wonderful series called, uh, I think it was Movies to Offend. He, you know, like, a local broadcast network. But he produced a nice little set of movies from that. And it was, um, I think that was, like, where a lot of people discovered Highway from, which has yeah. A, the manacle, Kiefer Sutherland in it, yep. Um, yep. and it's a, like this play on uh, Little Red Riding Hood.
0: Yes, yes, and um, Kiefer Sutherland yeah. is fucking
2: crazy in that movie. So well, this was, is back in his eighties, sort of like when he was like dark and broody before he went off to be a cowboy.
0: Wasn't uh, Reese Witherspoon in that?
2: She was. Yeah, and um, the girl who plays. Jenny in American Pie, the girl with the yes. f- so pretty hair. Yes. She's in the sequel um yes. That's right. of a Trick Baby. That's which right.
0: is um, of a Trick Baby, yes.
2: Which is a play on Hansel Gretel. Um, it's pretty awful, but you know... You, <laughs> there's plenty of nudity in it to distract <laughs> your kids. So.
0: so, but see, you know, getting back to your point about, about what these, um, what these younger generations this is becoming a get off my lawn type podcast. Um, these, <laughs> what these younger generations are seeking out. I always think of it's, it's, uh, it, what the shame is, is that they're not seeking out these movies that have these practical effects because maybe the, the pacing too, you know, they're they're slower movies. Um, certainly, there's a there's a build of tension, there's a build of suspense that is not necessarily prevalent in a lot of the movies that we see nowadays. But if it isn't, you know, uh, impatience, if it isn't the slower movies, I also call into question what type of movie watchers they are. They're not film buffs, I don't think. They're not part of a film generation or film geeks because they're not really seeking them out. They're taking what they are spoon-fed just like the mainstream audiences are. So if they're being spoon-fed someone that they do like, an Eli Roth or whatever filmmaker tells them, you know, this is what influenced me or this is a really good movie. I know know friends of mine that... uh, uh, for the longest time would only seek out things that Tarantino mentioned or that he referenced so those movies in and of themselves they're not really doing any of the hard research they're not doing any of the thing any of the the their own um, uh, investigation investigatory work to find these things that might turn them on or to to you know seek them out to for their own pleasure they're just always taking the reference difference from someone else. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, well, uh, when you say Tarantino, people take it, use him as a reference point. I'll probably be guilty yeah. at that point.
0: Oh, yeah, well, well, it, but I think that, you know, it, there's a difference yeah. between uh, you and me and, and a, a few other people that use him as a as a reference point, but also mm-hmm. do the other thing I'm talking about, whereas a younger generation might only uh, uh, go see, um, let's see, uh, uh, Cannibal Holocaust because of the Green Inferno and might not go any deeper into uh the the italian um horror you know subgenres.
2: yeah i think it's rare again this all falls down to the importance of the people that you're getting your recommendations from um someone like quentin tarantino first and foremost i mean he's a fellow film junkie he's one of us yeah um i mean you can probably just all imagine us around the table in freaks just like chanting one Uh of us if he came around but yeah um he's a really great guy I mean Eli Roth he likes to think that he's the horror version of Tarantino and you see I mean this is the guy who thinks that Takashi Mike, his name is pronounced Mike Takashi mm-hmm. which yeah. he references several times on the um, Cabin Fever special features and was right. like uh, I'm sure that's kind of wrong there Eli but I think
0: uh, well, that's are... the, it's it's the the extra element of of being the Japanese pronunciation, so it's a little it's pretentious, is what it is. Mm. <laughs> that's what's going on there.
2: But I think it's kids, so they need to really they want to find themselves like groups. Things like Gentlemen's Guide to Midnight Cinema or yeah. the Feminine Critique, or even like what we were trying to do with the list. We're trying to provide people this entry point yeah. um, of which that they can they can get involved in. The things that I love about this group, these groups, are that when you encounter any sort of subsect of uh, cinema, you normally find these snobs hiding within it who will, when asked for a recommendation, they name the most obscure and bizarre titles <laughs> that they can, because it all becomes this bloody willy waving contest. Where, yes. Oh look, I've seen the rarest, rarest stuff than you have, and it. They're more often than not put them on something which should just completely freak the person out, and they won't go any further. Right. And they won't give them any sort of reference point. Like They'll watch like a lot of Italian splatter. and When you look at Italian splatter films, they, um, things like the Beyond that, they were essentially just trying to outdo what the Americans were doing. Right. Um, and this was like their interpretation. Unfortunately, what they produced then became really popular with American audiences. <laughs> and we just assumed they were all nuts over in Italy and that this was their bag. The same as when we had films like Legends of the Oberthin came out, when we had the early days oh, of
0: yeah.
2: anime release. Oh, yeah. And Legend of the Overfiend is a film that was shown in like Japanese sex clubs and brothels. Oh, yeah. But we weren't given any reference point with this, especially in the early days of anime where there a few people who were sort of like read up on the subject. Um, I mean, like, you had like the Encyclopedia of Anime, which was about it. Uh-huh. So you had very limited information. We had it come over and we got schoolgirls being raped by demons and stuff. And we thought, what the hell yeah. are they open to over there?
0: The good old tentacle porn
2: exactly and obviously in anime now there's so much different genres over here i mean back in when i started collecting anime as you said it was tentacle porn you had things like la blue girl and mad bull and uh-huh. violence jack and uh those sort of splatter sort of animes and you uh-huh. would have films like uh the ghibli movies come over right, right. to sort of balance it out or you'd have like giant mecha uh, such as like the platelet movies but mm-hmm. Again, it was very limited what was filtered through and they would tend to disdain for genres which would be popular, things like Cyberpunk, things like horror. Um these were probably we didn't have any things like Card Cap Secura coming over. These sort of light, sort of lighter titles that uh you can now see on like Netflix or Crunchyroll yeah. or any number of streaming services. And yeah. It's really you would sort of been exposed to this but there'd be no sort of reference points. And I think this is a problem that kids have today is that there's no real they have no sort of real elders that uh sort of guide them. there are groups mm-hmm. out there who will take people who are interested in these films they take them under the wing and like say oh you should see this and if you like this you should like see that uh so that's saying i mean just to go back to tarantino it, again i mean if the people who watch like say oh i like kill Bill," they say "Well, you know you should watch lady snowblood that was like right. a key influence for right uh the Bride or you should watch like the Baby Carton Peril series because that's where like the violence came uh-huh. from. or you if you watch Sonny Chiba's characters from the series called Gunner and G- 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 Gindo or Shadow uh-huh. Warriors uh-huh. Um, and they can like go off on all these exciting tangents and especially with material now being so readily available
0: that's what I'm saying, I think that's also the, the, the reference, not not to cut you off but I think the reference point also is that there's no gatekeepers anymore, you know, you talk about these elders, there's no one who is, uh, none, of, none of these uh, younger generations I don't imagine that any of them are reluctant enough to kind of like you know uh, uh, nervously kick the dirt and kind of go up to someone and say, can you like guide me because you're the gatekeeper because now they can seek it out they can seek it out on the internet they can seek it yeah. out on uh, on wikipedia or they can start you know from imdb and go down a rabbit hole and kind of find it themselves now do they Will they? That's the question. But the gatekeeper isn't there anymore to guide them. You know, the person isn't. You know, the the river sticks is not. It, no one's guiding them on the river sticks down into this. You know, uh, uh, grindhouse or or exploitation wonderland.
2: Well, I mean, you only have to look back to the days when I imagine we were coming up. I mean, over here in the UK, we had a series called Movie Drome, uh-huh. which used to be on a, on a, like a I believe it's a Sunday night. It's was presented by um Alex Cox, I believe, who uh-huh. directed Repo Man. Yep. Um and Kim Newman, who again is if you want to read up on the genre, I think Kim Newman's um tome, Nightmare New- Nightmare Movies, mm-hmm. is probably one of the essential tomes you have to have. And Kim Newman is one of the top British sort of genre and cult cinema writers over here. And he's like certainly one of my mentors. And though those guys, as I said, I would as soon just in your country who would be like one of the gatekeepers but with movie drum they would have a film on and they would come with these introductions and it would be this way for people to discover sort of culture and obscure cinema and where they could discover movies like the terminator which i know it sounds bizarre and i would say the terminator is this obscure movie but really back then it was sort of this little sci-fi movie that wasn't really overly discussed i think arnie at that point hadn't got his sort of fame and and Fortune and wasn't right. this house name and they would explain a lot of the style and the, and the theming such as like the 80s settings we had things like street gangs and alleyways and mm-hmm. the way the light was lighted and that and the ideas that Cameron was exploring with this film and I think it would be really nice to have uh, someone like um, Joe Bob Briggs Joe Bob Briggs yes um, and he would like come off with of these random sub genres for of things such as bunny foo, uh, whatever, and these. I think this is the problem we have we need to have a channel that like dedicates like one night to a week just to have, have the like figure to introduce a cult film, not yeah. any particular genres and not like just horror or sci fi or monster movies, just like a wide range of genres, especially because, as I said. At the start like exploitation so vast and so wide it's this multi-tentacle beast that you can go off on so many different tracks and it'd be nice to have someone especially for the younger audience or those getting into genre cinema to have that that's those sort of starting points right um which as you said i think there's some kids who will go out there and they'll just explore things all thrown back but there's those who are afraid to sort of kick the dust so to speak or I just be like seen as a newcomer.
0: I I know, yeah, yeah. They don't want to be considered a noob. But they don't want to be a newbie to anything. Mm. And I think that that's. Um, I think that I feel that I feel that in me because I I recently you know I I have to to confess that uh, you know you have to f- fess up to what you are. And I think that as a as someone who was born after uh, nineteen eighty one, that we're all in this group uh, uh, that I have to be lumped in with Generation Y and I have to be lumped in with Millennials (laughs) if you look at the the multiple sources that quote uh, uh, post-1981 as being this generation. But I think that there is a chasm between the early Millennials and the later Millennials when it comes to this because I don't think that there's ever this... um, this you're just gonna have to you know uh, bite your tongue and swallow your pride and and uh, be the person who's the noob, be the person who uh, is is reluctant but doesn't know anything about this, has to admit that you don't know anything about this and and kind of uh, have someone guide you into uh, Italian Jallo movies or guide you into um, Japanese uh, uh, horror shock type uh, movies, whereas with you know, nowadays a, a younger generation might say, "You know, what are my options here? I don't really need to put myself in that position. Let me just research it myself on the internet." Yeah. And therefore, you know, you 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 are you are kind of approaching everything with blinders on because if you're seeking it out by being the noob and you're you've got nothing uh guiding you, you have no one pointing you in any direction. It's scattershot. You're just you're mm. going and looking at everything and it's hard to focus on no, you should probably start with this before you go here and all that stuff.
2: I think the problem is if you approach anything blind is that what you're going to come away with is going to be as you said it's going to be a very scattershot opinion of any particular genre because uh-huh. You may just be here on a bunch of bunch of dreck, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, when you if you look at something like film studies and that, they want you to unfortunately spend all this time looking at a lot of genres that you have no need for in life, right. such as French New Wave. <laughs> I know there's people out there who love French New Wave, but you cannot bore me quicker than by making me watch Goddard. <laughs> to sit there watching Weekend and told, oh this is such an influential film and it, like Scorsese that's the worst thing they con you in by saying Scorsese was so influenced by Goddard and these right. and, well Scorsese maybe but Scorsese going off on his own track because sure. when you watch Goddard a lot of them are very of their period so when you yeah. watch things such as Sympathy for the Devil it's politics that is getting across a very of the period so yeah. you need to have a reference point for the politics it's putting across to Victor well, to any, make any sense.
0: There's always that question of the, the influencers and the influencers of influencers. So, to me, you know, uh, uh, I, I had friends that listened to only particular bands and I'd say, you know, they were uh, influenced by so-and-so, if it was the Beatles or uh, Deep Purple or anything, or, or Led Zeppelin or whatever. But they wouldn't go, like, if they were listening to heavy metal, they wouldn't go back one or two generations to see what was influenced in it because it's too far away yeah. you know there's too much distance there but yeah that's true most of the people that we uh, that we loved uh, a part of that American new wave or 70s cinema whether it's Scorsese, Spielberg so on and so forth all of these guys were, were influenced partly by uh, foreign cinema like Kurosawa and everything but most of them always reference uh, a French new wave uh, Spielberg references it uh, constantly especially. Especially, you know, b- between uh, between Jaws, between the early ones or the Sugarland Express and Duel, uh, but certainly all the way reaching into C- Catch Me If You Can. I mean, you can see those influences there. But if you go back and watch those movies, um, I think that at a certain point. I guess that you have to be a hardcore auteur theory type person to really uh, appreciate it. But yeah. there is a disconnect. They're not the same thing. Uh, Scorsese certainly is not the same as Godard.
2: No. I feel, I feel, I feel as you, you said, I think it's with any particular joy, it's good to have the reference point. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that Godard for myself is an essential director. Is it as you as you were saying with like hip hop? I mean, a lot of these kids today they sort of like grow up and listen to like Dr Dre and Eminem all this gangster rap and stuff, and right. they don't go back and like realize that where hip hop originated from was right. all from the rock scene and how closely yeah. the rock scene and the hip hop scene were bound together. Because obviously, back in the early days of hip hop, and when you have things like Grandmaster Flash and uh, Hansel Boy Mother School coming up they had no beats. They would just sample uh, rock albums. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, right. they sample When I'm uh, 63 by the Beatles, which mm-hmm. I guess you probably wouldn't get away with now. Uh, well, this is so the most
0: expensive, what, like it's the most expensive uh, sampled record.
2: Yeah. So I think it's it's nice to have the the reference points there for films and obviously right. to know what, what came before it, where directors are drawing it from, but at the same time, you shouldn't beat yourself down by the fact that you don't appreciate French New Wave the way that a lot of Cinema snobs will say that you have to right
0: I think that that's getting to the point there to me because like like I said earlier where we have our our feet in being you know in the slums but also being you know uh, snobs I think there's varying degrees varying percentages of how uh, you know on what side of the fence you're leaning and everything but there's nothing worse than being I think one hundred percent in uh, in one or not and not the other because those people can tend to be the most pretentious the people that don't want to accept anything that's quote unquote beautiful art on uh the snobby end or anything that is a- a- extremely unique and yeah. and and crazy and something you'll never see in any other place on the other end in the slum area yeah yeah i think mean, let's let's talk a little bit about the um the blog and the podcast. Since we're we're an hour and ten into this, I do want to talk about what you currently do, your projects. Uh, what what started first? Was it the blog or the podcast? Uh,
2: well, the blog came first. I mean, at that point, I've I mean, I've been writing about about cult cinema since ninety nine. Okay. Um,
0: the, in what in what fashion? In what way were you writing about? I was it? just
2: just writing freelance for anyone who'd take me. Really, that's awesome. I would I would say. Uh, started off with like online places things like depraved press um i was doing some ghostwriting for a number of other sites whose names i won't mention because i feel that they're too far up their own ass these days <laughs> um but certainly from there i would i was started off like trying to teach myself how to write and like hone in my craft and i would do it for like the online pages and i would try back in the early days when you just had geocities to try and make pages. I mm-hmm. think my first page I made was the film freak reviews and it kind of died to death after about seven or eight reviews. And I was, I joined on with like depraved press and that fall, fell apart and it was always like joint sites and they would all just fall apart. So shortly afterwards. So right. whether that was anything to do with myself or not, I'm not too sure, but it's, do you, sparked do you, that do you carry that,
0: do you carry that on your shoulders? Do you think that, it was you who crossed
2: <laughs> I don't know I mean I used to when I finally got into writing for Prameda I used to write for Hot Dog and I think a year and something after that also went down as well so it's uh, I'm, I've achieved that wonderful goal of that only uh, Barbra Streisand's hairdressers achieved of been able to fail upwards in life because <laughs> Barbra Streisand's hairdresser he's now like his big Hollywood producer I think he did the uh, main event the Barbara Streisand boxing picture uh-huh. was one of his but I think only me and him have managed to fail up with life <laughs> as I'm currently do stuff with like uh, total film as and when they need me and yeah. there's a number of other publications it's just really any anywhere that I can find somewhere that has got film to write about I mean I've done stuff with things like Hustler I wrote about pornography nice. uh, for a period and again it was sort of a case of you know would pay you X amount to write about film, I was like, I'm there. Right. And it was just this idea of, again, pornography, backing the early 2000s, and I think now it's okay to talk about pornography uh, to an extent, I would say. Yeah, it's getting yeah. accepted, but yeah, certainly back then it was still very much a no-no. It's like, you don't write about this. These are like filth magazines. It's Especially if you're writing for like one of the lower-end things, such as such as. Uh, Hustler and stuff, it's not like right. got the glamour of Playboy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is obviously this same this idea of the gentleman's lifestyle.
0: Right. Hustler um, is definitely more of a smut mag, yeah.
2: And I mean, it was there, you obviously got people like Chris and uh, Noriko, who was really developing this cinema technique, um, and which I stole, well, I plagiarized, I would say, because there's no, when you write about pornography, there's only so much you can write. Before you find yourself being repetitive. Um,
0: well, in what in what way? I want to know because when you're talking about film critique, that's one thing. But when you talk about pornography, are you so you're talking about pornography film tech uh, critique, or are you talking about pornography? Yes, in a,
2: basically, it was um, at the time. It was sort of like there was I was wanting to because at the time I was writing for Kingpin, which is a skateboard magazine, and then I wanted to. Get uh, see if I could get in with Big Brother which is the American magazine who were uh, right. also owned by part of Larry Flint's media empire so they own Hustler as well
3: uh-huh.
2: and it was a case like well we got no vacancies but these guys have got uh-huh. vacancies if you want to go and write for them and sure, being so, such an old school writer you don't turn down a paying job Oh you yeah, regardless of it. if you can fake your way through it I mean it, I'm lucky we're in film you, you can go away and you can educate yourself to an extent right. about right, right. most genres of films it's not like Particle physics, something like that where you need to know essentially about it. you can actually teach yourself about films and especially now it 's only the easier with things like Wikipedia, but back right. in the day you it was a case of cracking open the, your copy of Halliwells and going through it and
0: well that 's to me like that's that? that's the interesting part because I want to know like how do you how or did you how did you critique without becoming um sensationalist with your language or did you like
2: was so, it w- what, how did i about <laughs> becoming a filth peddler? that's um, what i'm getting
0: at exactly
2: this is the thing there are i think there are writers out there who are able to embrace the sleazy side yeah. um and bring a very good spin to it certainly there's a lot of very good feminist writers out there you've got people like uh, christine Makepeace, who you've had on before absolutely mm-hmm. who are able to approach it in a way, uh in a very interesting way. You've got Robin Bogie, uh who does uh, cinema sewer. Yep.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Who again he's able to embrace the films. The same way John Waters is able to embrace the filth. Yep. Uh, in a way that I've always sort of struggled to it because I, I don't know whether his tower was raised and stuff. You, in your back of your mind he you, kind of morally question what you're doing but at the same time the paychecks make it kind of easier Uh oh
0: definitely you you could dry dry your tears with those (laughs) those uh those dollar bills man
2: that's the thing and
0: pound notes
2: but at the same time it's like you're a young guy you're interested in in this sort of taboo food you can't really essentially talk about it even though everybody's interested in it right nobody really wants to talk about it but it was finding the way to spin it. It was sort of like we'd have a title come through and it would have no director and, or some or like no cast list and it'd just be like a, <laughs> a scene. So your whole story would just be like this story of how you tried to find out who the hell made this. <laughs> and I it'd see. be like that way you get around it because otherwise it's you read any sort of review or sort of smart review and it's sort of like they're going into graphic details yeah. and calling yeah, people yeah. derogatory things and. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just too clean to go down that path that I, would, I would find skate that... around
0: it. I find that fascinating. To me, it's always more interesting what people uh, do with very little than what they, what they do when they have a lot to talk about. Like it's easy to to go into a, a, a hundred-page dissertation about uh, Kurosawa's Red Beard, but when you're given a scene with very little extra textual information, even the people who made it and were in it. Like when you're talking about something that is so uh, base and taboo, especially at that time period, I wonder. Like that's fascinating to me how how you dig into that.
2: Well, this is it. I was always I was less interested certainly with my test back then. I was less interested in in the <laughs> films which had some sort of a plot line. Now, I mean, certainly when we look at the industry now. It's, yeah certainly more interesting like the Ben Dover movies like what we classify as being Gonzo Porn Uh uh, which is now really just the model for when you look at things like North America or Bang Brothers Uh this idea that you're going out with your camera and you're picking up this girl and we're going to do this scene, we're going to pay the money and stuff Um, and that's where his scenes essentially were the same, it was sort of like you know, I could be this guy and I could be with this woman essentially was the model he was going with um, now, well, when we go, with the plot-based ones. You've got people like Vivid and that, and they're doing full production, right? Things. But
0: I think um, that the, the the money, I think the money that that is there or was there is not there anymore. So the instant no. gratification of going on the internet and watching porn, which is basically uh, seeking out a sex scene to watch, I guess the imagination and the the narrative porn. In general, is not there anymore.
2: I mean, have you seen the uh, the triple X parody of the Big Lebowski they did?
0: No, not at
1: all.
2: Uh-huh. Um, it's from this, I can't remember the, I think it was New Sensations that, that did it. They've done a bunch of parodies. I mean, they've done like Seinfeld and Friends, yeah. And, mm-hmm. But you watch their Big Lebowski and it is shot perfect. Well, wow. this parody, it's like <laughs> they've obviously added their pornographic flair to it, but right. Um, I would say that uh, certainly the movie Pirates.
0: Yeah, Pirates. Uh, that's what I was. I enjoyed of.
2: that more than Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> not just not just for the nudity quotient, but the storyline in particular is a lot better. But
0: you like the story? Yeah, I, I, that is the last. I think that's the last major hurrah for <laughs> narrative, um, uh, narrative porn that I've seen.
2: Okay. I mean, I'll tell you over here in and the UK, we have instead of Netflix on disc, we have Love Film. Uh-huh. And they have the softcore version of pirates. Yeah, now without being this this yeah. explicit movie it is, there's <laughs> very little pornography left in this movie, so it's essentially the storyline part you get, and it's it,
0: and it's still options. two hours, right? Because the pirates movie with the porn scenes was like two hours
2: and forty five. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's considerably trimmed down. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's just the trimmed down version is still a more enjoyable experience than Pirates the <laughs> <of> Caribbean. <laughs> so
0: well okay so where does where does uh d- doing uh writing for money where does that lead you to doing the blog?
2: I think the blog really it, it really came with, it was about seven years now we've been writing there uh, from the of DVD hell um, really, I was in the the case where I was moving i moved away from Birmingham, so I was sort of like having less freelance work in. I was just... uh, The work was so generally uh, drying up as the sort of interest in in cultural school school cinema became sort of mainstream, especially with, like, foreign cinema and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was more than there, but um, there's a diary that's uh, produced every year called the Bemrick Diary, called This Diary Will Change Your Life, and every day it gives you a different challenge to do. Mm -hmm. And the first challenge was to make a resolution that no one else has made, and I made the resolution that every... Week, I would sit down and I would write about a bad movie. And in doing so, and I've totally blamed Stacey Pondro for it, uh, the Final Girl blog for this is that I was quite happy going along to my bad movies. And then she did Friday the 13th for her Final Girl film club. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to write about Friday the 13th. So I did that. And then it changed the blog, uh, probably for better or worse. And it became about writing about the films which interest me, so be it right. foreign and obscure cinema. And so it wasn't time, just
0: it just was it wasn't just from the depths. It was no everything. It no
2: longer became. I mean, still a lot of the films who we we look at even now are, are sure. still of that quality. Sure, um, but at the time, film blogs were very sort of genre specific. I mean, it was mainly yeah. like horror blogs or foreign film blogs and that. So what I was essentially doing was just i was quite happy just like skipping between genres like taking bits and pieces of everyone just like writing about films that interest me mm-hmm. um yes i write about perhaps higher quality of films at times but there's still those trashy titles that i would look at certainly when it comes to asian cinema mm-hmm. and we have like a lot of fan subs films which are still leaking across things such as like uh stephen child's got a cookery Or you have films that like uh, imported across from, yes, Asia, such as like My Neighbor the Sniper, Mm -hmm. um, that obviously gives you the the opportunity to still dive into that. So it was really through that I started meeting other bloggers, and at the time I thought I was the only one doing this sort of genre hopping. And of course, it was Bryce Wilson of uh, the now sadly defunct Things That Don't Suck, and he sort of like sent me this email. It's like, I really love what you're writing. I looked to this page, and it was sort of like you bastard, you're doing what I'm like, but you're doing it better than me. And it's funny, whenever I talk about Bryce, I refer to him as being my rival the same way that um, Chuck Planick, uh talks about the author of Clown Girl as being his rival, because we had this healthy competitorship, even though I, I would right. say, honestly, he's miles ahead of me in terms of the writing. But it was from there that, we obviously created the 1001 list, the right. Bad, Bad and Direct Strange list or the MBDS showcases it evolved into as a podcast. Right. And it was this idea that I wanted to, as I said before, originally I wanted to create an entry point for people to get into these films. And at the same time I wanted, the original plan was that we would cross blog it. So we'd have this list of titles and we would have links to other blogs because mm-hmm. you had to remember this time i think this being about four years ago we were being saturated by video bloggers they were coming in and people were i think now they've pretty much turned away from print blogs right they rather just watch videos it's hard
0: it's super hard isn't it yeah.
2: and i feel there's in some way there's been a little bit of the art lost and it's meant i think in many ways that we've lost some very good writers uh such as uh jen francis of the cavalcade of uh versions mm-hmm. uh, no longer rights we obviously lost things that don't suck uh, Paris Cinema would be yeah. another example really even though they, they're still there yeah. uh, it, it seems there's more more an audience for these video blogs and I feel that it's while there's people who say yes you know you can have both and it's just whatever you feel comfortable with there's people like Emily uh, in Trevio over at Deadly Doorhouse of yeah. Horror Nonsense who says you can have both well, I, I can't w- help but feel that one is eclipsed in the other.
0: Do you feel like it's falling apart because of the the lack of money in it? Like it has to be a free a free <laughs> endeavor. It has to be something that's a passion project, and and really, in in truth, uh, especially in the economic atmosphere that we all are in, um, that it's very hard to to st- still stay passionate when you got to pay your bills. I
2: would s- <laughs> I would say that would be one of the factors. Um, Certainly, whenever I people ask for advice on on writing and and that generally, I say always write for yourself first. Yeah. Don't write for an audience. Uh, Write for yourself because that will always carry you a lot further than if you're writing for this imaginary audience. I mean, certainly within those early years, you're kind of like the guy sitting alone in his desert island, throwing out messages in the boat into the ocean, Mm -hmm. hoping that someone would come along in his speedboat to (laughs) to write messages for them.
0: Absolutely.
2: It's few and far between that that you can, but at least that while you're writing, you're not only improving the your work, you're providing a portfolio so that when you do Absolutely. approach someone, you can say, "Well, this is what I've been doing." Absolutely,
0: yeah, um, yeah. And then you went on to trying to find the big riches with the podcast, which I mean is something <laughs> that you're you're definitely making a lot of money at. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I no, that. Think- the- that's great because I think that yeah I think that's the biggest thing. I, I hate when they say that uh, you know uh, Huffington Post or or whatever venue saying that they're happy that they don't uh, pay their contributors, and it, it's such a fucked up thing. Whenever someone it's, says you know wow. uh, we pay you in, in experience or we pay you in in building your portfolio, but it's it's this partly is, true. Right?
2: This is the thing. This is something certainly with the as older grizzled writers out there, <laughs> and it's. And you, there, there's a lot of dissolution people are saying, oh, we're all going to strike. And it's like, well, if we go on strike, it's just we replaced by hungry, younger mm-hmm. writers, and most of them who will do it for free. Yep. And we're not like the screenwriters guild, mm-hmm. who obviously have their set staff, so they can afford to go on strike because they've got the backing of their guild. Sure. There is no one backing us. Nope. Uh, if we stop writing, there's just always going to be someone younger and hungrier right. who will replace you. Um, and this is something that annoys me and I think it's very much because of coming from that generation where you were writing something because you enjoyed it, not to create this, this source of income, this mock celebrity that a lot of these video bloggers seem to be aiming for. And it annoys me no end when you see people with a little patron campaign. Right. And it's like rate it's like shaking the little tin can there. <laughs> it's like I can't possibly produce my podcast unless you give me money. And I'm thinking my overheads are so low. Right. I mean, back when I first started it, if I could just afford to like get enough just to buy buy bloody instant noodles, I was happy. <laughs> I don't want to be like have some full sort of fame and fortune. I would rather be recognised in my field. Yeah. As someone who, of someone who's knowledgeable on on my subject, than have some sort of like quasi fame to be like one of these like YouTube. Uh, celebrities yeah, that you see out there and they have like oh, a million hits and they're like yeah. supposedly generating all these funds and stuff but they put out these like patron videos it's sort of like oh I need all this need you to support me otherwise I can't produce these videos and I'm thinking why produce a podcast it's very cheap to produce
0: absolutely yeah
2: I have the tip jar you know if someone feels inclined to throw money at me they're more than welcome I'm not right. going to refuse people's money right. but at the same time I'm not going to sit there and beg people for money to produce my show it's sure. sure it's been produced out of passion I mean the same way that, that you produce this show I mean you Absolutely. do it, this love of discovery uh, it, I would
0: it, imagine it's the it's always the question of like why are you doing something and if you were doing it for money how would it change to me I mean the, writing and and doing a podcast I mean both of those things have to be something that you would do whether you were getting paid or not it has to be something that's that's built into you what is your creative outlet so if I created this podcast and, and continue to do this podcast um, to to be a, um, a, a mile marker in my life, to be uh, uh, a time capsule of moments in my life and, and interviews and talks that I had, I've had with people, then it's got to be something that I want to put out because I want to put it out, not because of the promise of uh, some extra dough. Yeah. You know? I, think, I think it's a difference of authenticity too, because I mean, uh, if you were doing something with the ulterior motive of making money, and you were doing this art or whatever i think that there would it would show through that you're you're inauthentic that you're fake unless you were actually Committed to doing it for free. It's like you, when when you write, you do it for yourself, so that at the end you can see the final product and just release it into the world. It's the same reason why someone does a podcast, edits it, puts music on it, makes this fucking you know product that you can throw out into the world. It's authenticity.
2: I mean, certainly, when I started writing, uh, and this is something I do miss back in the the old days, because no one. The way we interact with things now has certainly changed. Back when I first started writing, you could write a piece and it would spark a debate. You would have other film fans like and they'd like raise their own points about the films, their own experience of the film. And you would have these little debate pieces of what you had written. And that's what drew me in originally. It was this quest to find like-minded people to talk about these films with, um, as well as just a desire to write about. These film these interests. Um, and obviously it's led me I've been very fortunate, it's led me on to some really great people within the sort of film community that I'm now through the podcast essentially get to hang out with and have these discussions with because geographically we're all scattered over the place. Right. So it's not a case of being able to just hop over the Atlantic to go to America or whatnot mm-hmm. or uh, to, to see people and we recently, last year, we had uh, the first UK meeting of the, the Lamb, the Lamb meeting, the Lost Association movie blogs, and we had uh, people from French, so the people from French Sunday. We had Jess Manzo and Lindsay Street, um, and Rob from their side came over, and we had several other British bloggers, and it was great. These people you'd spoken to over Skype, and right. you podcast with, finally be able to come together and, and just completely nerd out. But, it was so nice going into that meeting because it felt that you were just like meeting no friends because of the conversations you'd had and again this is what I love about podcasting is the fact that you get to talk to people you wouldn't normally get to talk to right. and get different opinions, different insights into films and hopefully as a byproduct, inspire some other people to check out these films you're talking about um, and that's all I really hope for with the list is just that I can inspire people to to try to look at something that they wouldn't look at I mean... How great would it be if uh, if just this discussion with that we inspired someone to like go out and hunt down Psycho Pike, for example? <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but you know, uh, gave me the
0: download. Yes. I am interested in watching this, yes.
2: I mean, who doesn't want to see, a, see one of the two movies featuring a killer Pike? I mean, this <laughs> this again is the appeal of the cinema. I mean, you don't get this sort of appeal with mainstream cinema. You don't get like... I mean, who doesn't want to see Pam Greer? Uh, kicking ass. I mean, who no doesn't? One,
0: everyone wants to see that, absolutely. It's, oh, it's well, t- t- tell bad. me t- tell me something it, through the experience of the podcast so far and and c- having guests come on talk about, you know, two three movies whatever. Um what what have you gotten to? What have you, you know, I I know that you've gotten better as a host, I imagine. You've gotten better uh, feeling more comfortable with with doing the show. But what have you gotten to, is is there an understanding that you've gotten to um, just about the movies that you've talked about so far? Is there any sort of revelation that you, you've you come upon as you've been doing that podcast?
2: Oh, there's been certainly, I've, if anything, we've created a second list. So we, all the while we've been doing this, working our way through one list, we're essentially building our second death star with all right. the titles that keep getting suggested. And obviously as films keep coming out, but... Right. There's been certainly every... I would like to say every guest that has come on has brought some insight or some opinion on what we've been talking about or their relationship with the film genres that has... That's been, there's been of interest to in myself. There's always been that those moments of... Those fa- moments that even fascinate myself, even like as a long-term film fan, the fact that I can still be surprised or find something of interest in the genre. I mean... Uh, there's a guy called Will Slater who does a site called Exploding Helicopter and Mm. it's a site dedicated just to movies featuring (laughs) exploding helicopters and this is all he looks at is just the different ways helicopters explode and he was like explain to me like he's seen a movie where an American football team blow up a helicopter with an exploding football or he's seen an axe blow up a helicopter or he's seen this movie where they blow up five helicopters and I think we were looking at Hard uh, Ticket to Hawaii, and in there, there's a scene where a, a woman fires a rocket launcher, and we're like, wow, that's so rare. And it sparked this whole like, mini quest we've embarked on called Girls with Rockets, where we try and find movies where women are firing rocket launchers. <laughs> Sadly, not, uh, there's uh, not enough of it. Uh, not, em-
0: not enough. Always fully- like, like, fem- like female directors, not enough movies. <laughs> With women with rockets.
2: <laughs> well, it's there's with female directors. There's not enough female directors producing films which are, are of note to us our, ourselves. Generally, I mean, yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: There's there's certainly directors out there who I wish that we're getting more credit. Uh, people like Penelope uh, Spears, who mm-hmm. did Wayne's World, yeah. let alone the uh, Decline of Western Civilization right. trilogy. Absolutely. Um, which, if you're into into like. Um, into metal or punk, Hardcore, yeah. punk music. right? Um, certainly that's an essential And She keeps saying that part four is coming, but she won't say what it's about. right? Um, cause she was on Mark Baron's podcast and there. She was like teasing that there's a part four. And I was like, well, what's it about? <laughs> you've done like the LA punks in part one. You've done the metal years, which it was essentially fading into a part two with right. people like Ozzy and, uh, and that's, and then you've, Obviously, done the street punks in Part Three, and like all the gutter punks, and they're covered in the green slime and God knows what else. Mm-hmm. Um, but those films are really this sort of documents, and I think it's really through the cult sort of cinema channels that they're kept alive as these important documents. And
0: absolutely,
2: I mean, especially when you look at like a decline in Western civilization, and you just like see like the old school footage of like Black Flag and Husky D and. Mm-hmm it's like, well, this would be like completely lost if there weren't these, these kids are like keeping it alive, keeping the interest there. So oh, the oh,
0: yeah.
2: companies that are actually taking time to restore the prints and, Oh yeah. You know, back that, them up in an archive somewhere.
0: That's the other thing, you know, that's the other side of the, the coin. When we talk about um, the, the renaissance that we went through uh, kind of the VHS generation, the, um, the VCR generation yeah. that through that now, we're going through this weird renaissance where all these movies that were lost that were part of this VHS generation especially horror and and exploitation movies that are finding new life on Blu-ray labels that you would never have expected would see the light of day and they're being restored they're being they're, they 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 look the best they that they ever have they're in the aspect ratio that they were intended to it's just insane that we're living through this renaissance to to extend upon what we were talking about earlier
2: i have to ask did you get rid of your vhs cassettes did i get what did you get rid of all your VHS?
0: Unfortunately, yeah. I think that it was part of my <laughs> it was part of my family. Uh, yeah. it, it was never something that I I bought my myself. I didn't okay. really start collecting um, uh, home video until the the DVD generation, and and so the VHS thing was always something that uh, I, I would seek out with with friends and family. But yeah, I, I, it never it never stuck with me after that. Yeah.
2: I, I miss – VHS was such a wonderful thing because it's, it's such a presence that VHS has. There's yeah. A, perhaps in a, a slightly more shitty way than vinyl does because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't t- – the trouble with VHS is that unlike a, a DVD or Blu-ray is that the more you watch it, the more grimy the tape's going to get. Yeah, yeah, it's just like um, film.
0: It's going to pick up the scratches and everything.
2: Yeah, and it always used to be amazing that uh, you'd like lend your friend to like <laughs> – set in films you'd see the bits that they watched over oh, and over yeah. again. Like.
0: Yeah, it's always the nudity and the sex.
2: <laughs> the nudity, and the, the of <laughs> violence, you'd find that bit quite fuzzy but yeah. it got returned to you. Oh
0: my uh, god every time, every time we we had several cassettes it would always be on the sex scenes, it would always be during the nudity in, in uh, the James Belushi, John Ritter classic, um, uh, Real Men, I always would the, the fuzziest part would be where the tits <laughs> came on screen, absolutely. Nice but yeah no 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 it's just a it's a different thing i think that the things that i do find admirable is that these movies from the the vhs generation are finding a new life and i do like that as far as the millennials are are involved and, and generation y is involved the y- the younger generations that there is this import put on um Kind of keeping alive the idea of needing more uh, minority voices and more women voices in this art form that we love so much. So w- we're in this renaissance of nostalgia and we're also in this renaissance where it- it's it- our generations making it an important thing um, especially in social networking, the internet blogosphere, making it an important thing to keep the opinion alive that we shouldn't just have status quo.
2: I think the problem we're now encountering is that what used to be this sort of secret secret society now is now attracting a number of hipsters, I'm finding. And I'm hearing, like when I listen to like Junk Food Diner and stuff, they're complaining when they go to like uh, film festivals and stuff. You have these groups of people that go in and they laugh at minor things, uh, such as things such as periods, such as like the fashions and stuff, rather than right. things that we would like laugh at because they're they're, they're, they're shot crudely or they right. have unintentional I mean, intentional humor value. And I think that we've got this generation that come in and they're watching bad movies and they're watching things like The Room, um, and especially the, we have people trying to recreate bad movies and it's something that annoys me when you see things like the sci-fi originals
3: mm-hmm, right.
2: um, and not so much like giant octopus versus, versus megashaw versus giant octopus but saying the films which followed after it's like uh, sharknado and that where you're yeah. intentionally setting out to make a cruddy movie Yeah. when we look at the films of like ed wood um, and a lot of these, like, 1950s B-movies and stuff, these guys weren't intentionally trying to make a, a bad movie. They were just doing the best they could. It's true. It's true, right. Um, and I think that's lost on, on some of these hipster audiences where there's so sort of it's disrespecting it in a way right it's so surface
0: um, it's a it's such a surface thing it's such a surface like recreation yeah. of something um, that it's missing the, the the content and the context of it usually these movies were made as as good as they could be by the filmmakers and the byproduct was whether it was an inept filmmaking whether it was uh, an off-the- the wall sense of humor uh, you can't you can't install that in the movie that you know is this kind of hearkening back to nostalgia. I I think about Hobo with the Shotgun. I think about these movies that are kind of uh, uh, um, uh, riffs on the yeah. things that they were influenced by. Whereas you know the things that they were influenced by uh, had some some uh, some meat to it. It wasn't just surface stuff.
2: I think with the neo grindhouse genre so things like hobo with a shotgun uh things like grindhouse and these sort of movies they they fall into two very distinct camps you have those which are trying to recreate um, a sense sense of period and they assume that by making it crappy that they're somehow emulating the grindhouse uh right. spirit where you've got other people like Tarantino Rodriguez um, you've obviously as you mentioned you've got like Hobo or a Shotgun you've got Bitch Slap mm-hmm. um, and the guys over doing things like Man Borg or Father's Day where you can tell they're trying to they're, they're using it as a shooting style right. not as an excuse just to make bad films it's just a, a style of filmmaking the same way that you would make something in a New Wave style or you right. would make something in a in a, a noir style just the Neil Greintel style they realise they're treating it as a filmmaking style rather than an excuse just to rush something out and just like say, oh, it's crappy effects. But, you know, it's Neo Grindhouse, so it's supposed to be like that. And it's like, you're not capturing what Grindhouse cinema was.
0: even even a movie like uh Turbo Kid which i immensely enjoyed falls into that category you know it's it's a question of of uh the the original motivation for a lot of these movies was to make a quick buck or to you know have a um a showcase for a particular actor or a particular theme or something like that or just you know tits yeah. and gore but um you know now it's like it, it is its own um, Um, aesthetic. It's its own thing and um even with the Tur- even with turbo kid which i think you know benefits from a lot of the sense of humor it benefits from a lot of the the gore that it's uh that it's riffing on um it even fits into that that category because it's kind of a booyah base of all these these 80s or early 90s um uh, uh influences you know if you're a kid that grew up during uh the bmx generation you get it you, you- you know, yeah. if you, if you grew up during uh, uh, John Carpenter and the 80s synth, you get it, you know. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, speaking of uh, Carpenter, the film that I remember everyone losing their mind of, and that would be The Guest. Right. And everyone was loving the uh, Carpenter vibe on that. And I would like to see films that like more. I would love to see more films like The Guest. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and just this idea that you're taking an aesthetic, but at the same time, you're You're aiming to produce a quality product. You just is it's a filming style that you're using. Yeah,
0: true. A quality product. Yeah.
2: With Turbo Kid, yes, it's got that sort of VHS Silvera styling to it, Um, especially in terms of like the splatter. The as you said, the right the BMX, the gnome on the stick, and just the general look of the movie. I mean, for myself, it was really the sort of the last uh, forty minutes that movie where it sort of found itself. Right. And it had this wonderful uh, stand up villain in the the robot skeletal, mm-hmm. Um, which I felt really sort of carried it across. But I would like to see more filmmakers like that, that producing sort of those sort of quality movies. Um, and But at the same time, I don't want to see sort of movies sort of rushed out, like True. rushed out. And when you've got people like the director of the, the room claiming it's a comedy when you know it's been shot in shot oh, as yeah. a, a drama, it's like. Oh, yeah take bloody pride in your film you know it is what it is right and now that you, they're just like playing up that that sort of oh it's so bad it's good sort of aspect right. I mean that's right. just nothing for me um, I like these films because you know they're turning and they're entertaining and engrossing the story and it's the style and aesthetic which I'm vibing off it's not the fact it looks so crappy or the fact it's it's intensely hamming things up true um, and it's something I think a lot of young filmmakers I wish they would sort of realised I mean I mean, I would. I think uh, another film, which is essentially just the closest we've got to really sort of like modern exploitation, would be Sucker Punch. I would love to see another Sucker Punch. I know there's people out there who certainly wouldn't. Right. But I loved uh, the idea of Sucker Punch. This sort of balls to the wall um, experience. Mm -hmm. It was essentially just TNA and um, and and, yeah,
0: and video game video game spectacle too. You know, there's a part of it that is so um, infused. with not only action cinema but the video game influence, you know. So yeah, um, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Richard. We should do. You know, we're gonna we're gonna be doing something for your podcast very soon.
2: We are. We've uh, we've got a couple of episodes coming up with yourself.
0: Yeah, um, I would lo- I, I'm gonna I'm gonna love doing this. I'm really looking forward to this. We had such a good time f- with the first uh,
2: episode. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, certainly. Your the original episode, we discussed the Devils and Seven. It's a uh, it's a weighty chunk of podcasting because I don't really set myself any sort of limits. I'd sort of record as long as the conversation is interesting and fascinating, and then enter into it with the intentions of editing it down. But normally, there's so little to edit down, they end right. up being these weighty things. But
0: do you do you ever do you ever find yourself cutting the show more than than what the the conversation is. Do you have you had anybody on the show? And you can name names that were just boring fucking people that you couldn't believe that you talked to for three hours.
2: <laughs> I've not had anyone who's boring. I mean, I've, I've very rarely. I think I've cut things out mainly. Other than obviously the ums and theirs and all right. that that sort of thing, just to smooth things up. Right. Uh, but I've occasionally I've cut something out where you've. Had a joke which has sounded great, but then it's back to it's <laughs> fallen flat. Or, but I think I, so far I've only had I had one, one which I think the person I was interested in was the director of um, um, a film called Party Slashers, who at the time was trying to raise money for his Kickstarter campaign. And ironically, after he came on the show, his Kickstarter campaign fell apart. Oh. So I don't know if that's anything to do with me or what, but um, I think he came on and he he didn't really, he saw it as more of like a an intensive interview rather than just a conversation, which is what podcasting is. It's sure. a conversation that um, we've obviously with without the limitations of a, a sit-down interview. Sure, we've got time as I think we've obviously done on this show and obviously your previous shows to explore ideas and, and open up uh, various avenues for conversation and this is what I love about podcasting. It uh, obviously gives you that. It helps you to look at things differently and discover new things it's, um, the,
0: it's the breath it's the air I, I think that the pointedness you know I've done recently I've done more and more uh, interviews that were pointed that you know we, we were promoting a particular thing especially when I get Action A Go Go stuff um, you know coming through here D- Derek from Action A puts Go uh, puts together a lot of um, uh, connections uh, for the show and, and we've had a lot of pointed interviews which had a had a meaning and had, you know, a place to go. But I think that the the ones that I enjoy the most on this show are the ones that are kind of
2: that have breath,
0: that have the ability to just be a conversation.
2: Yeah. I I certainly enjoy it when people are passionate yeah. about the subject material. I find those are always the best best ones. If I can if people come on and they're passionate, it's certainly when I'm Looking at people to bring on, I always love that look for those people who are passionate. It doesn't need to necessarily need to be in the same field right if they're passionate about their field yeah I find that to, that to be one of the most most interesting aspects, and certainly when you listen to other podcasts, things like uh maron as uh, said mm-hmm. uh, w t f podcast
0: mm-hmm. um, which and- had, just this just this week. As we're recording this, he did one with Sasha Baron Cohen and one with William Freakin, and I think they were two of the best interviews I've heard on his okay. show. It's just a high watermark.
2: <laughs> I've I've got them saved, but I've, as I said I've just done two six-hour train rides, and I was, <laughs> all I did on the way up was listen to podcasts. I've pretty much replaced radio at this point with just yeah. podcasts. Yeah, yeah. So it was like I had all these, um, all these podcasts to sort of catch up on. I had like Feminine Critique saved up. And, mm-hmm. Um I had like Junk Food Dino and um there's a Um a new show which is being produced by the makers of uh, French Two Sunday It's Lindsay and Jess, and they're going through the Star Wars franchise as first-time watchers. Wow. Um, and it's called Sorry in Advance. <laughs> and it's it's so fascinating to obviously listen to two people who've never seen Star Wars before. Right. To go through the original trilogy and in a way knowing what things have been spoiled for them but getting to experience it again for the first time which I think there was, I'm trying to remember who it was now but I think it was uh, Sean who used to be part of the bonus material podcast and he was like saying that he'd go to conventions and stuff and people like say "Oh, I'm so sorry I haven't seen this and he was like no 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 it's great view. You. you get to watch it for the first time
3: right, yeah, and like
2: when we did uh, Fade to Black which is uh, on the episode he was on um it's a film about this serial killer who kills people based around his favourite films
3: mm-hmm.
2: and he was like it was like like vibing off the fact that I'd never seen this film before and it's like oh it's so good you like getting to see this for the first time it's like for myself I've seen it like four or five times I don't right. have that initial experience and I think sometimes it's that first experience of a film is the one that you kind of most treasure and you want to Alex. relive and there's very few films that will enable you to have that same experience such as I think for myself, Richard Kelly, like when I saw Donnie Darko and Southland Tales especially, um, Southland Tales I will, I've gone into numerous arguments defending that film. Um,
0: I still haven't seen it, but I hear, like there are more adamant people about Southland Tales than I can can number, that I can count off on my hands.
2: Okay. Southland Tales is movie Marmite. I don't think you have Marmite in the States, but it's... It's Vegemite. Uh, Oh,
0: Vegemite, right. Yeah, yeah.
2: So people, and I mean, Marmite themselves admit it, they did this whole line (laughs) of advertising called I hate Marmite and (laughs) I love Marmite because people either love it, like my wife, and they will drown whatever they have in it or they just hate it outright. (laughs) (laughs) Selfland tells you will either love or hate that movie. Um, I basically tried, I pitched it for the movie The Mum from the Lamb cast and it felt like the final scene of Casino where uh, Joe Pesci's being beaten up in the field. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, think Dillon was the only person who liked it on this film, but it felt like, for my part, that I was with this onslaught of people hating it. I was like, but don't you get these ideas that they're showing here and like, what these characters are representing? And they're like, no, this is bad. And it goes on too long, but... For myself, Southland Tales is just this immersive experience like Donnie Darko.
0: Is Southland Tales on the list?
2: I believe it is. Yes, has Southland any, Tales and Donnie Darko is on the list.
0: Has anybody done Southland Tales yet?
2: They haven't. <laughs> have you talked about it on a podcast yet? <laughs> oh, I've, talk, I've talked about the Lancaster. We haven't, haven't talked about it. I think the film we have talked the most about on the podcast is Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. There's a point where every episode <laughs> we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road, like the, the, how excited we were the lead up, and then several episodes how excited we were to haven't seen Mad Max right. Fury Road. Um, and I think on my other show, uh, TV Good Sleep Bad, I think every episode we've done we've done so far we've made some reference or discussed Rick and Morty. <laughs> so there's the certain things that I still find myself obsessed that's, over even now.
0: For me, that's such an interesting thing because TV is where I'm, I'm uh, always interested in where the bleed over is between both of our cultures. Because, you know, I, I work in a, in a job where I, I deal with a lot of international clients and I, I talk to some of the, the people that I'm closest with as co-workers uh, work in London. And it's always interesting to me, too, what, what, uh, what culture has gotten over there. Rick and Morty is so weird to me that it's something that has has bridged internationally yeah.
2: I would say that Rick and Morty um, certainly for ourselves there's one man responsible for that and that's Mr. Robert Zerby of uh, the site to the escape hatch uh-huh. he basically promoted it on the lamb cast, gotcha. and from there it's sort of spread like there's like more it's been more contagious than the monkey and outbreak <laughs> like, it's gone from one person to the other that's like, awesome. everyone's been like you've seen Rick and Morty it's like this is so good I mean people are watching it without even knowing who Dan Harmon is. Right. They don't know about the Harmon town podcast or the fact he did community. Right. Um, It's sort of like, you know, this is this cool show and they have like cool film references and it's really bad taste. And there's an episode where they Cronenberg the universe. I remember (laughs) that's been discussed heavily and it's sort of like, as I said, it's just gone from person to person and it's sort of uh, become this very underground cult hit to the point where I think he's done certainly Harmon no wrong because people have obviously burned for the first two seasons and they've gone back and it's like well, what else has he done so they right. listen to the Harmon Town podcast which again I would say is one of the essential shows um, out there that mm-hmm. you need on your list. It's. A lot of people said it's one man uh on stage destroying himself. <laughs> there were, like one there man's were self-destruction.
0: Yeah, there there were particular phases that were worse than others, I think. Yeah.
2: Okay. I mean I've only I've uh it was sort of as of last year, so I think it was um I think it was in the episode A Little Retarded or something, <laughs> I think the episode title was, but there's an episode called Sociopathic Anal Beads uh-huh. where they have one he has one of those great stat, like improv moments where they have all their team come together and they're just adding to this scene. I think there was one he did recently where they talked about how they spear, they torpedoed uh, Yahoo when they Yahoo bought Community, right? And they were doing this this boardroom thing where they're inside the boardroom of Yahoo explaining the situation, <laughs> what happened. But uh, but I think they got the director of the Lego movie regularly appears on there. Yeah, absolutely weird link
0: absolutely you you know what that's what it is you're going to have to end up doing a, a essential uh list of podcasts and even maybe maybe <laughs> even go down one more uh level to uh essential episodes that's going to be your next foray i can feel it
2: so essential podcast what was the I, I mean essential podcasts there's a lot of shows out there which I mean, you have things like the LAM Podcasting Network uh, Mm -hmm. over at largeassmovieblogs.com which has its own little network and all the shows sort of promotes each other but there are a number of other shows out there which kind of can get overlooked because they rely on their own sort of advertising to get across and I, I do encourage them to try and get involved as being part of the network or send me a trailer so I can promote them because I, I love their shows. So things like Junk Food Dino or Illogical Contraption um, or kissing Contest. Um, and I know with the last three, certainly they've got uh, their own podcast group called Podcast Town, mm-hmm. um, which they tend to promote their little group within. But you've got the Feminine Critique, which I think Emily and Christine are uh, essentially just running through the Facebook page. But right. they've got their own... Their own little dedicated following there to say to show, but yeah,
0: I, I always find that it's more important to have, like whenever whenever I'm thinking about talking about a movie, I always think about what their opinions are, because it's not just the it's just not it's not just a female opinion, but both of them have such a, a fucking a great uh, uh no bullshit attitude and and yeah. gleeful no bullshit attitude about uh, about the things that they talk about, and I love hearing oh, them talk and 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 play off of each other uh richard why don't you give some some plug action for your own merchandise and wares uh, before we uh we go and call it a day
2: right um uh, well for the blog you can find it from the depths to be dot um obviously the podcast is on itunes and podomatic um my bad and dynamite strange showcase is uh, down as mbds showcase um, again, another valuable lesson, if you're going to create a podcast, at least make sure it fits on the search bar. Um, <laughs> uh, other show that I do with uh, Daniel Lackey of uh, the Nightmare Gallery and Cinema Access is called uh, TV Good, Sleep, Bad. Uh, that's a monthly podcast, and we're currently doing that in partnership with Channel Superior which, uh, again, is channelsuperior.com And where I'm currently writing the Buffy recaps at the moment, so... Fantastic. It's uh, nice the fact that they've, for some reason, another Bubble Weed, who runs the site and he's kind of like the maestro of comic book movies over at the Lamb. He runs Flight types Movie Nights, which is his film one. He did one, started this site now for TV superheroes. And he uh, basically said, you know, do you want to come and host a TV Good Sleep Bad on our site? we are happily host it. So, That's awesome. So far, we haven't got fired from there, but I guess <laughs> it's only a matter of time. But if you like, uh, Cult and Obscure TV. We Each episode, we each challenge each other to watch an episode of a, a Cult underscore Obscure TV show. Uh, the episode we've just done recently, uh, we looked at an episode of Japanese Spider-Man, as well as the classic Doctor Who episode City of Death. Wow. Um, coming up, we've got an episode of, um, of Ultraman being paired up with uh, the MSTK uh, 3K episode Teenagers from Space. So, nice every episode is something different um, and we obviously look at things we've been watching so we have did a big focus on the X-Files when that was being rebooted and we've just obviously recapped the last episode our thoughts on the recent relaunch of that series as well so uh, both those uh, shows are on as I said you can with TV Good Sleep Bad you can find it at com, or you can find it on iTunes or uh, Podomatic whatever works for you really
0: Richard thank you so much man we're going to be doing uh, episodes on your show
2: soon Yes, well thank you again for having me. This is really one of those uh pinnacles of podcasting. It's sort of like when you start out in your field there's some things you want to hit, so it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure and an honor on my part to be on awesome. the show.
0: So thank you so much. Thank and then know. yeah, and when you come on next time, we'll we'll get a little deeper into uh, cult film. Hey, maybe we'll even talk about pornography. How about we pick two pornographic <laughs> movies, and they have to have narratives. They have to have narratives, and narratives. we will we will break it down like you do on your show.
2: <laughs> That's the thing. I think this is the thing we need to. Create a platform. we pornography. We need to find a platform where pornography can be discussed in a sensible and insightful manner, right? Rather than just like sniggering and giggling about the fact you're looking at porn. And well,
0: you know, here's things. the problem. Here's the problem that we we come no no uh, pun intended maybe pun intended on <laughs> that is simply because I think that that people will rate their experience with a pornographic film based with how good the orgasm was or or been, do you or do you do you agree or not
2: it's i think everyone's <laughs> looking for something different with with the with what 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 excites them what gets them true off. true um i mean you look at the dizzying amount of categories that pornography's diverted off into um there's there's always that that the people have their own limits of what they will push true. to and stuff true um and what they would like to see There's people who are far at the far end of extraction who want watch things like the Houston legendary gangbang, I think, which is at 601 <laughs> men. And that's an, an entertaining afternoon for them. Um, other there's those who watch like the celebrity sex tapes. And I don't know if it's just like curiosity or, or what reason, but, I can't think of any reason anyone wants to watch the Hulk Hogan sex tape.
0: <laughs> the fascinating thing for me is always, and, and this is where people have trouble uh, exposing themselves. It's, it's the yeah. soda. It's their fetish. It's like, what is their particular fetish? What do they put into search bars? What do they go seek out? You know, uh, I think that's kind of like looking at someone's iPod. You You find out a little bit too much about them.
2: I think, yeah, the, people people don't want to admit how big a pervert they are. Exactly. I mean, there's people unless again unless you can put a spin on it, right? Um, and I think this is this is what I love about about uh, feminist writing in particular, in the fact that they can have a whole subsect of feminist writing dedicated to being pro or anti pornography. Yeah. True. And there's some fascinating pieces on both sides of the the fence on on that piece. You've got. Books such as uh, No Man's Land or Gelvert mm-hmm. uh, out there, which are just absolutely fascinating reads, and it's uh, as I said, it, I think it's one of those areas where it's lacking some sort of. I don't want to. I think the only way I can put it is of like highbrow thinking for lowbrow cinema,
0: right?
2: Yeah. Um, the the way it's like someone like uh, like Christine when you had Christine on your episode, porn bad. Yeah, and the way that she discusses it, and certainly if you look at her Twitter feed, obviously the w- the way that she discusses pornography, and there the are people out there who discuss um, pornography do, even from like a historical aspect or, or the current status of, of pornography how it's distributed, how we view porn and what our relationship is with pornography I think there's many fascinating subjects which can be discussed with, within it it's not so much a case of looking at things on a film by film basis just the evolution of uh of titles or performers within the industry um which is also the reason i don't follow anyone anymore because as soon as i support anyone within the industry they either go to prison or get involved in some scandals with james dean that's what happened with james Um,
0: dean i was going to bring that up exactly
2: he was obviously he was he was my guy i mean he was a feminist pornographer and obviously Mm -hmm. we found out that Certainly with the current accusations going on obviously with Stoyer and several other performers coming out that it's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um and obviously there's been other performers out there such as Lucy Lee who's obviously gone to prison. There's been other male performers again who've obviously gone to prison or the people just retire or drop out of the industry. There's no real documentation of the uh the industry or people willing to look past just the the obviously the, the graphic side of things and I think that it's- would be what it needs really
0: and yeah and it's very difficult to i think it's still an industry that's very difficult to to penetrate um in in the fact that so many people i think are, are very are very surface about what they talk about you know i don't think that there is any sort of uh deep meaning that you can go into with a lot of the people that you would interview um they're very they're you know they're doing uh they're doing um kind of like uh press junket uh type interviews when you do ask them to be on a podcast or you ask them to to criticize or critique their their work or their industry they're not very uh apt to do it
2: no and it's it's frustrating certainly there's been people within the industry I tried to obviously get on and even if you are present it as an open forum there's there's still a, a reluctance there to yeah. Come on and discuss the the industry and it's, yep. it's 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 frustrating. Um and it's great that there are obviously documentaries out there like Sean Dunn's uh Cam Girls, uh-huh. which I believe we've just we've we did. discussed before. We did. Um he has actually put the film out now for free. You can view all his films on his website. Nice. Um but that film in particular uh-huh. it's it's great in the fact that it allows the performers to speak for themselves and there's that wonderful moment where he switches the camera around and Interviews the guys who use the cam girl services and what their relationship is to obviously cam girls and and the service and it a fascinating insight into something that we assume we know about but as it shows is got this completely different aspect and how people use and relate to it then people will probably uh, realise obviously without obviously uh, him going out there and obviously finding people to speak to and obviously getting into this industry which as you said already, it's, uh, it's very hard to get people to speak to and I would awesome. like more people to find more people to speak to about it and expand this knowledge base of the industry and how it's perceived and because you tend to find people either at the start of their career or at the end of their career there's very few people who come out of it and they feel that they can come out and say that you know it was something that they did they did their time in the industry and they came out and you know they went on to do other things right. Um, It now seems to be that you have to come out. If you come out, you have to come out and you have to sell this idea of being, that you're damaged in some way. Same as Linda Lovelace.
0: Of course, yeah, yeah.
2: Who obviously, the documentary Inside Deep Throats, many people were saying that it was because of her involvement and being used by the feminist groups and stuff that she said a lot of things and things about the industry. And obviously... Ended up going back into the industry as a result of it when she was essentially penniless and broke. When these groups had essentially abandoned her for right. um, her cause, so
0: that's the narrative, man. That's whenever we talk about porn, I always feel like that's the the only comfortable narrative is breaking the. If you're going to break the taboo, then you've got to be morally critical. There's no way that you can be celebratory about something that's that taboo. And I think that even though we it, it, the atmosphere has changed since 2000 late 90s early 2000s it's still like that's the the puritanical thing and this is especially true in America even if you get someone talking about um porn in in a in a way that they're you know appreciative and celebratory very few of them would want to come on a podcast and 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 talk about that Christine is yeah. maybe one of uh, three women that I know that would do it so
2: but again it, it would <sighs> I feel that perhaps if more people were talking about the industry rather than. Right. Especially when you have documentaries like Hot Girls Wanted, which it's, paint this one idea of what one, the yeah, industry is. One side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very sort of traditional view that, you know, the industry just uses people and disposes them. But that could be any industry. The Hollywood system uses people and disposes them. When you look at how young starlets are treated within the industry that you have this sort of sell-by date on your career unless you become a somebody in which case you obviously have the potential to expend yourself further but all the time you're, you're, you're constantly facing that sort of constant clock that's ticking down on your career because there's always that younger, harder actress that will replaces you but obviously because it's Hollywood we don't view it the same but it essentially it's the same as um, the world of adult, adult cinema in that way but Sure. I think perhaps if we were talking about it more, that it would perhaps change the way things are run within the industry because at the moment because it is so underground so that things can be run essentially. There's no real sort of guidance, as far as I'm aware. And again, this would be something that would be revealed if someone was out there doing the proper research. As to what, So, guidelines and what controls are within the system.
0: Exactly. Well, Richard, thank you so much for the talk, man. We're going to do thank more you. of it soon.
2: I hope so. At any time.
0: Get some sleep. I know it's, what, 2 a.m. there?
2: Uh, Well, yeah, we're about 2 a.m., but, you know, it's never time wasted when you're doing something crazy. Hell, yeah.
0: Thank you so much, man. Have a good one.
3: I will always love you How I do Let go of a prayer for you Just a sweet word The table is prepared for you Wishing you Godspeed, glory There will be mountains you won't move Still, I'll always be there for you How I do I let go of my claim on you
1: It's a free world You look down on where you came from
3: Sometimes But you'll have this place to call on